How do you do, everyone? My name is... And this is the Bloody Disgusting Network. The succeeding show will fill you with dread. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. The man in black fled across the desert and the losers followed. Greetings, constant listeners. Welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Rando Thoughtful, and today we reach the end of our perilous trek with the Dark Tower, the seventh and ostensibly final book in King's Dark Tower saga. In our wake, like so many dead Cuthberts strewn akimbo along Jericho Hill, lie episodes on The Gunslinger, The Drawing of the Three, The Wastelands, Wizard and Glass, Wolves of the Kala, and Song of Susanna, not to mention episodes on Dark Tower adjacent novels like Insomnia, Black House, From a Buick 8, Everything's Eventual, and um, more. I mean, Salem's Lot, for fuck's sake. Uh, you can listen to those before you listen to this, but you also don't have to. Maybe you just like endings. Well, before we reach our destination, let's meet our quartet, the likes of whom I, I can't thank enough for graciously lugging their gunna across this marathon sprint through these last three books. Mr. Caffrey, say hello if it do you and tell me, did you miss out on any, on any Royal Tenenbaum screenings while reading this book, The Dark Tower? <laughs> Hi, this is Dan Delo Caffrey. Um, <laughs> I did not. I, unlike the Song of Susanna, I was very concerned with finishing this you know, getting across the finish line very quickly. I don't know. I, cause I don't think I got the first edition when it came out. If I remember correctly, I got a paperback at the, do they still do that book fair on printers row in Chicago? That used yeah, to be a thing yeah. way back in the day. I remember I found it there. So it had to have been one, probably a couple of months after it came out once it was in paperback, but I read it right away. Um, I think it's very fast paced despite its length. That it was, and I don't know, it's like the end of any series, right? Once you're there, and no longer feels transitional. You're kind of galloping toward this final thing. So did not miss out on any Royal Tenenbaums screenings or any screenings. I just read it like a good boy on the train and probably at my house a few times too. That's great. And then I was going to say, I went to the Printer's Row Fest once and I the and it's this, you know, esteemed book festival. I bought um, a WWF cookbook from 1998. Ooh, um, nice. Which Wait, was, what, what does that have in it? Like, uh, oh, it's like Chris Jericho's enchiladas. Like it's oh, so it's literally wrestlers being like, oh, here. this. Yeah, is but I, like I, I think it's all made up, you know, like I don't think <laughs> it's actually their recipes. It's like like Kane's like, it's- fiery chili yeah, body <laughs> slam burrito. Yeah, it's stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, um, the, the, the spear on your taste buds from Goldberg. <laughs> the asparagus spear. <laughs> uh, Dad Flieger, say hello and uh, tell us, like, what do you remember about reading uh, the final Dark Tower book? This is Dan, Dandelwood Guns Flieger. Uh, Happy <laughs> took my Dandelo. I, I thought you were, I, if you, I figured you would take Dandelo if you went first. So I had Danville in my back pocket if in case, but uh, I was always one step ahead. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, like I said, I read this pretty quick succession back to back with book six originally and other than Cujo which I read as a kid the Dark Tower was sort of my first journey into Stephen King so it's been really fun rereading it and discussing it with you guys because obviously I'm getting a lot more of the references yeah Um, a lot of those originally in working on the Dark Tower detour podcast I've sort of 
reverse engineered like oh this was a reference to that but kind of reading it again in real time was very interesting especially with book seven because there's a lot of specific call outs to different king titles i mean they're literally calling out insomnia yeah it's so wild i I cannot wait to talk about that bit where like they're like we have experts working around the clock to decipher uh the dark tower references in stephen king books and i'm just like oh it's us um so anna say hello and uh tell us uh your experience with the final dark tower book I was really trying to look for a cover nickname. <laughs> I just can't come <laughs> up with one. My, my, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, There's a lot Anna of Marie lots Mordred. Of yeah, I love um, that. Anna Marie Mordred Cox. Uh, wow, this was, it's a real book stop, or book stop. This is a real doorstop of a book. It's yeah, a book man. stop in a way too, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I finished it actually a, like a week ago because um, I was so concerned about finishing it. And um. I got a little angry at it towards the end. Oh, wow. It was, it was a little bit of a like, come on, come on. Yeah, we'll be talking about the ending quite a bit. Um, like yeah. the whole, like, the, mm, like you know how Susanna gets so cold and tired. <laughs> I get really cold and tired towards the end of it. Um, yeah. I wish I could have drawn a door um, and escaped to, to some hot chocolate. Uh, with Mitch Schlag, the good kind. Mitch Schlag. That's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to honor Mitch Schlag. That's a good, oh. a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like it. that one. Better um, than Mordred. You say Patrick, Patrick Onneville, but sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm reading these on a Kindle because I'm trying to reduce the number of less things. material things in my life, <laughs> having moved like three times in the past, you know, two years. Uh, and so I'm definitely at a disadvantage. The only advantage, which I'm sure y'all have discovered as well, is it's easy to look up things like character yeah. names and references. So that was really useful because as listeners may know, I joined this journey halfway through, um, much like a certain certain characters. Uh, I'm like, I'm the Father Callahan yes. of this crew in many ways. And uh, so I had to look up a bunch of stuff. Um, and it, what, what did you just ask me? I see I'm forgetting everything. Oh, much like the people I... leaving, much, much like <laughs> Susanna leaving the, the midworld. I'm just forgetting it <laughs> the further it gets away. That's okay. I uh, No, I was asking what edition you read, but you said you were on Kindle. Oh, right. Dan's, yeah. what editions did you read? Uh, this is the, hey, the way, the way I try to roll, the big first edition. Uh, yeah. It's huge. It's heavy. My left arm's been hurting anyway from holding Boone a lot. And like, I felt like it was making my arm hurt whenever I was like standing in, on the train and reading it. But uh, yeah, but the, the first time around it was that whatever that first uh, paperback edition was, it has like a rose gold cover on it in the field of roses with the tower. But yeah, this I always is the... laugh remembering Mike Rothman's story about being in London <laughs> yeah. and reading it and it being too much of a burden to carry. So he would just tear out pages. Like when he, was I believe he did that. I hope that wasn't a first edition or something. I hope it was like a cheap paperback. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Did I tell this story at the time that that's the way I find this story very cute? When my parents were young and couldn't afford a bunch of books, that's how they would share books. Like one of them would start a novel. And then when they got like halfway through it, they'd tear off the first half and like give it to the other. Oh, that's, oh, that's sweet. I like that. Yeah. Uh, and then they like... got divorced, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, they had already split the property, right? Yeah, so, uh, the books. That's right. That's right. Uh, Flieger, what edition did you read? So I lost the original. I used to have the first edition, but I lost it somewhere in a move or loaned it to someone. Um, 
so this time I actually did the audiobook with the Kindle version. Oh, nice. Um, and I'm kind of new to Kindle as well. I've only started using it the past year or so because I still love the tangible quality of a book. Yeah. But like Anna was saying, it is actually very convenient to be able to look up passages, especially when we're always having to do like our favorite passages and quotes. It's a lot harder to dog hear it and remember versus just typing in a keyword and it instantly jumping. Yeah. Um, so I've been doing a lot of kind of a combination. But I was going to ask Caffrey, so you're carrying the first edition. What edition is Boone? I guess he's first edition too, right? <laughs> first edition Caffrey. <laughs> first, first edition. Yeah, for, well, I mean, first I guess first edition Caffrey and Myberg, right? Because there's, yeah. other, there's other Caffrey. Yeah, no, there's son, there's, there's another son or daughter. Involved, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about I was like, oh, he's, he's the fourth edition. I've been um, <laughs> dropping seeds all around the country. and uh, I used and to have a first edition as well. And it, I lo- I've said this on the other pods, but I lost it along the way somewhere. But I, so I got this from, Mike had a, a Simon and Schuster pocketbooks from 2004. Or, oh no, that's the publication date. It's probably from a few years after, but. So Wait, it's show like, that, Randall? I think that's the one I read the, the first time. Yeah, that's the oh, one yeah. I got from the printer's row. Uh, yeah, it's back. got the rose and the tower on the cover. Yeah, and I kind of, I don't know. It's like, so, it's like such a fucking thick paperback. And it kind of took, I don't know, there was something almost nostalgic about it because that's how I read The Stand. The Stand was my first king. And I, I just remember it was this massive paperback book. And um, and I don't know, like reading it that way was kind of fun. And um, and I've, I went nuts filling it with notes and stuff like that. That's what I mi- I, I, I read mostly on Kindle. Um, but I do miss sort of uh, being able to flip through pages. Like, honestly, like with the pod that's been helpful is, is it's helpful on Kindle too, because you can search. But like, I don't know, being able to flip through pages and find my little underlines and everything is is like weirdly nostalgic and takes yeah. me back. So, yeah, it's I miss that as well, because I have like a coded like legal shorthand that I use when I take notes. Mm-hmm. But when you do it on a Kindle itself, it'll be like, are you trying to spell this? Or sometimes it'll autocorrect the spelling. And I'm like, no, I just want to put my like symbols and codes. No, like I'm I searching for paperbacks. rando thoughtful. Yeah. Um, OK. So let's dig into the history of this one uh, in a section we call the Dairy Public Library. Mike Allen, if you see- Excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out. (laughs) 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 Mike Allen, did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Here in the Dairy Public Library, we break down the history, uh, uh, basically quotes, context, reviews, things like that. And there's some really interesting stuff here that I think is going to carry through throughout this entire discussion. So um, the details, the history isn't too elaborate. Uh, It came out in 2004, September 21st, which is actually King's birthday, uh, which I did not realize before. Um, Published by Grant, who we've discussed in previous episodes, kind of has had the first edition monopoly on these books because they took a chance on the books early um, and the stories. So it was illustrated by Michael Whelan. We can talk a little bit about that later. And um, uh, it won the British Fantasy Award in 2005. So but let's talk about some of these quotes. There's some interesting stuff here. Sadly, I had to... uh, uh, trudge through the swamps of of some old ain't it cool news articles um, to read some of these quotes. I was going to uh, ask you about that, and I saw that in the notes. I was like, oh damn, Randall, scraping the bottom he of the barrel. He had a couple. There. He had a couple decent quotes in it, but like, God, reading that stuff is nails on a chalkboard. But um, okay, like he said, uh, I just thought this was a, a funny little quote from King because this was in the year. This is a lot of this was pegged to him because he didn't do a lot of interviews about 
like the Dark Tower itself when it came out. But when the comic books came out some years later, he did a lot of, um, I think, reflection on it. And the reflection, I think, is important. So he described the Dark Tower as an acquired taste like anchovy pizza or something a little bit different. I thought that was kind of a fun little quote. And then uh, Ain't It Cool asked him, you know, one of my favorite things about Dark Tower. Well, they didn't ask him. They just talked at him uh, that it connects damn near everything you've ever done. And King says that was always the idea to see if I couldn't hook it all up together. It wasn't based on the Dark Tower itself. It was like when a book like Insomnia would come along or a book like it, you know, immediately I started to think in terms if there's something cosmic going on here. Uh, it's all hooked together. I sort of went with that. And I noticed in a few other interviews, too, he he mentioned insomnia specifically as, I think, kind of a epiphany moment where he was like, OK, I'm really going to start taking this seriously, the idea of weaving my other books into it. And um, and I'm reminded of that section in the book when they're at the Tet Corporation and they they kind of say they kind of explain away some of the uh like the more archaic moments in I think the Dark Tower lore where they're like, oh, well, sometimes the stuff uh, is actually important to the Dark Tower. And sometimes it was just like bullshit that, you know, because his mind was always kind of filtering Dark Tower stuff, but not all of it meant something. <laughs> so that was just kind of funny to me to explain away uh, perhaps the moments that don't make as much sense. Um, so in the Dark Tower Companion, which I believe was published in 2012 or thereabouts, he was asked, you can sort of see in the early days when the stories were first published in the magazine of science fiction, how your thoughts about Martin and Walter and the Man in Black evolved. I read this quote in the last episode, but I wanted to read it again because I think it's it's relevant. He said, uh, these stories all want to cohere. The Dark Tower books are always trying to get back to some kind of central myth core, but I could never define it and I never tried to because I'm not that kind of writer. I'm very instinctive. It's not anything that I'm really thinking of ahead of time. And I can't get over, like, for me, how important that quote is. I think in understanding the, the kind of full breadth of the Dark Tower, especially when you measure it up against other fantasy series, um, that I, you know, you look at Tolkien, you look at Martin, you look at, you know, uh, Robert Jordan or any of these books, these long series, there is this sense of, um, specificity and fastidiousness and research and the idea that this is a fully realized world that has been perhaps tinkered over and, uh, fussed over in the minds of these people for many, many years. Whereas King is just kind of like, all right, back to dark tower, like jump right in. Let's see where this takes me, which I think is such a marked distinction, and I think speaks to perhaps the best of the Dark Tower and the worst of the Dark Tower. Um, we'll talk more about that later. King on finishing the series. Uh, this is also from the Dark Tower Companion. At what point did you know the Dark Tower series was going to end? King said, I knew how things were going to end from probably Wolves of the Kala or Wizard, Wizard and Glass. There was always a question of what was going to happen when Roland got to the tower. One possibility was that we would never know that he would blow his horn and go to the tower and that would be the end of the series. I've never had a lot of patience for that kind of thing. I feel like you have to give people everything and if they like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. A lot of people didn't like the way the thing ended. But after all the things I'd written about how cause a wheel and it always comes back to where it started, I don't see how anybody could have expected anything different, really. That's the way it works. The same idea exists in Ghost Brothers of Darkland County, that until you get things right, you have to do them over and over and over again. That's human nature, as I understand it. That's how we do what we do. If you want to quit smoking, for instance, if you fail, then you're smoking again. You're back where you were. Maybe you try again, and sooner or later something changes, but only through that process of repetition and incremental learning. 
I used to get crazy and I stopped finally by the time I got into those last three books. The internet was a growing concern and people were sending all these posts and everything. There were all these theories about how the Dark Tower was going to end. There were websites that were dedicated to it. And all these physicists would write in and say all these things about wormholes and everything. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, you guys, I'm an English major. I flunked fucking physics. Give me a break. I did what I did. That's it. What do you guys make of those quotes? I mean, I agree with all that. Uh, I like what he's saying or what you were saying about the distinction between something like him and Jordan and Tolkien, Mm -hmm. guys who I think plotted everything out not just the events that happen in their series but the world around it right before they even started writing it and i think part of that is just king being um just being a little more you know seat of his pants working in other genres besides just fantasy and also just the nature of what the dark towers quest is it's always been kind of nebulous right like roland has this instinct this urge to follow it and find it but he doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets there he doesn't even know what he's trying to do with the tower really like i know he's trying to in this he's they're freeing the breakers so they don't destroy the tower but beyond what he's going to do when he gets there that's never been anything concrete and so for me i think it works for the most part as a whole series because i think that kind of uncertainty and that sort of improvisational nature of it just just been baked into the dna from the beginning of it and um yeah i don't know i actually i i don't always think king has I don't want to say he doesn't have the most accurate assessment of his work because it's his work, right? Like, who am I to tell him he doesn't? But, you know, sometimes, like, when he was talking about Dreamcatcher when it came out, you go back and read those quotes, and you're like, man, maybe Dreamcatcher just wasn't that good, and he conceded to that Well, he on. conceded it, yeah, yeah. Where, whereas I think, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if he's been asked about the Dark Tower anytime recently. That all feels pretty accurate, and I don't think he went into this book or talked about it in the afterward in any kind of way where he thinks it's perfect or the series is perfect. But I also don't need this series to be perfect because it is so wild and unique from the very beginning. I'm kind of, I kind of love the warts and all outlook of it um, as we get to the end of this book. So yeah, I think he's right on the money with all that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's hard to place this because I mean, this is from 15 years ago. So when he's like, you know, there's websites about this. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. now it's like there's a website about every topic you could imagine, right? But it just gives you sort of a placement of time of like people, this was, nerds were really geeking out about this stuff at the time it came out. And I think- the ending, when I first read it, it kind of perplexed me. It didn't wow me or disappoint me. And I tried to think of how I would end it, and I've still never really been able to come up with one. But on this reread, I agree with King that there there is a lot of stuff about time repeating. And there's a lot of lines of someone being like, we're going to be doing this forever. And a lot of deja vu that's been throughout the series that you're like, yeah, he really was setting it up to have this kind of uh, repetitive ending. And what's cool is that you know, we'll get to the ending in detail later, but it might actually change on this next journey to the tower, which I've always thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that, that concept later. Something that I think puzzled me when I was young, but I think makes a little more sense now. Anna, any thoughts? So I agree with everything he said. And I think it's funny. He dropped the quitting smoking in there because that's, a, I mean, it's another form of recovering from addiction, I suppose, because that's a very, it's a very recovery notion, you know, um that you don't i mean i was thinking about this the other day people who try to quit uh drinking on january 1st like it's pointless to make a single day your your official special day like Mm. to aim for a special day because the point of of trying to be in recovery of trying to recover and maybe the point of life is that every day is only special for the day that it is and then you start over the next day and you just try to do it a little bit better yeah you know and if you decide I'm going to get sober on this certain day, this is going to be the day. Well, then what about the next day? 
Yeah. Like, how's that day going to be special? Like, what's your resolution for that day? Um, and then also there's a saying in recovery, which is you always can start your day over again, which I think is sort of the hopeful part of the way that book ends, right? Which is that resets are good. Mm-hmm. Resets are um, available to you at any time as well, which maybe isn't true here because you have to get to the dark tower. Now that said, I, I have written a novel. <laughs> I've written a novel and it has an ending where the protagonist at the end starts writing the story of the novel. Mm. And I've never been satisfied with that ending of my own. Like I've, I've, I, I think it was a good choice, but at the same time, like it's never satisfied me. So maybe I'm projecting a little bit. Oh man. Uh, Like I love that you're bringing this up because (laughs) the biggest question I have, and I don't want to talk about it now necessarily, but we will is, is the question of is King satisfied with this? And I think that's what you're glancing towards, isn't it? Yeah, something can be true, but not satisfying. And maybe that is the nature of life, right? Well, that I think ties to um, something I'm, yeah, like the afterword specifically in The Dark Tower touches on a lot of what you're saying. And when I read these quotes, there's like anger in them. Like uh, the these ones here where he's like, I'm, I'm, I was an English major. I wasn't a fucking physics major. And I think a word that keeps coming back is, Uh, in my mind, is pressure. I think the pressure he felt from multiple directions, including existential ones, really, really, really shaped and I think are responsible for, again, the best and the worst of this book and uh, speak a lot to the ending. So I also want to read this section from the author's note at the end. Um, I'm going to read a couple sections from it as we go on, but I'm going to start with this. And this is where King is directly referencing himself writing himself into this narrative. He says, there's a smarmy academic term for this, metafiction. I hate it. I hate the pretentiousness of it. I'm in the story only because I've known for some time now, consciously since writing Insomnia in 1995, unconsciously since temporarily temporarily losing track of Father Donald Callahan near the end of Salem's Lot, that many of my fictions refer back to Roland's world and Roland's story. Since I was the one who wrote them, it seemed logical that I was part of the gunslinger's ca." My idea was to use the Dark Tower stories as a kind of summation, a way of unifying as many of my previous stories as possible beneath the arch of some uber tale. I never meant that to be pretentious, and I hope it isn't, but only as a way of showing how life influences art, and vice versa. I think that if you have read these last three Dark Tower volumes, you'll see that my talk of retirement makes more sense in this context. In a sense, there's nothing left to say now that Roland has reached his goal. And I hope the reader will see that by discovering the Horn of Eld, the gunslinger may finally be on the way to his own resolution, possibly even to redemption. It was all about reaching the tower, you see, mine as well as Roland's, and that has finally been accomplished. I want to keep those quotes in mind as we move forward. Some other quotes about the ending of the Dark Tower. This is from Aina Cool. King says, one thing that I thought about Uh, The way that the book ends is that it allows people, if they want, to go from the end of book seven to the beginning of book one to start over again, which in a way is the great theme of the books, which is that cause a wheel and it turns. That's all it wants to do is turn. Uh, And then in the Dark Tower Companion, he was asked, do you have an idea of what changes Roland needs to make to redeem himself? King said, sure, I do. I know exactly what he's got to do. You have to go back to the first book and look at that and then you'll know the answer. What do you guys think the answer is? I almost think it's, I guess you could say something simple like the horn or whatever, right? But I actually think it's weirdly not 
being so obsessed with the tower? Like what <laughs> happened? No, for real. Like what happened? No, because yeah, single mindedness. Yeah. To Anna's point about um to about like you know days repeating, but maybe it can be in a different way than the last time. If you look at the end of it, and yeah, I'm trying not to front load too much of the ending because I know we're going to talk about it later. But I don't know. By that point, the the breakers are freed. Um, the world's not going to end, right? I mean, I guess the Crimson King is there. What would happen if Roland just went to Central Park with Susanna? What like yeah. the, the the this running theme throughout the whole series has been he always chooses the tower over his friends. Always, mm -hmm. even in instances he where also he also puts get... them in danger. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, like literally kills. I mean, essentially lead. You could argue. I mean, this book is a pile of bodies by the end of it, and um, I'm not going to say it's Roland's fault, but like they're all in service to Roland's mission, which I guess mm -hmm. you could argue is a mission of, uh, you know, that takes the greater good of humankind into consideration, but that's not even what it's about for Roland. It's just this obsession thing that he's after and after and after for reasons he can't even really articulate to himself. And, I, and so I wonder if the answer is, okay, do it this time, but don't throw away everything else um, along the way, especially when you don't have to, um, after certain plot points, I, I I think that I mean, like I said, he might just mean the horn. Like, okay, he's gonna remember to pick up <laughs> Cuthbert's horn this time. That can make things different. But I I think for that, it's like sort of just learning to love and learning to appreciate the smaller things in life, which which he does in this book because we see a lot of Roland mourning and Roland recognizing how important his friends and loved ones were. But once again, he keeps on going. He's still able to compartmentalize that grief and put it over here, so he can just like go and go and go and go and go. Um. So that's why I think it means. Anna? Okay, we keep saying we're going to talk about this later, but I literally just thought of this because I have been thinking a lot about how sometimes King writes about recovery, even when he's not writing about recovery, and Roland's obsession with the tower is a kind of addiction. Yeah, absolutely. What if the next time out, he doesn't look for the dark tower at all? I was going to say, what if yeah. he doesn't follow the man in black? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like what if he just like has a good life of some kind exactly. and uses his powers for good right i mean that's what a gunslinger is supposed to do in in these books he winds up helping people but it's on the path of the of going to the tower yep. right like that's the real goal is to go to the tower and when he does good deeds or help people that's just kind of like a thing like okay fine like i'll do that because that's what i'm trained to do um but what if he just never finds the tower yeah like I mean, I, because, okay, I'm going to try to just not talk too much about the ending. All right. Well, we'll get, we'll get there. We'll talk more, but I think that's all, that's very much, I think, in line with, with where I've landed on a lot of this. Um, and I think what King was really getting at. Can I, can I weigh in just on yeah, the, yeah, the metafiction? So it's like, you know, now everyone knows what meta is and storytelling. It's kind of a fucked out term at this point. But this really was one of the first ones of like, I never had seen an author write themselves in other than like Kurt Vonnegut quite yeah. in the same way. And I think with Roland's journey, it's that meta deconstruction of like the hero's journey, right? Roland never quite, he's starting to get to that point of atonement, but then his journey just starts over. And I think that in a way that's King sort of tearing apart the hero's journey, right? Like, has he really learned? Is he about to learn? But then it's taken away from him. But even the fact that this is sort of a retelling of King Arthur in a lot of ways, right? He's related to Arthur the Eld. There's a lot of these, you know, the characters exist in different times, and yet they still kind of keep making the same decisions over and over. So I think just like largely King was commenting on like, you know, we're all kind of stuck on these loops that kind of repeat themselves over and over, whether we want them to or even realize it. Um, so I think him just having fun playing with that. And I feel bad that he got defensive 
And whenever someone starts invoking like what they studied in college is like, well, hey, I'm an English, not a physics. And it's just kind of it's such a funny it's like I did interior design, not golf course. I think management. he's slightly dissatisfied. I, I, think, I think yeah, I think I, he's slightly dissatisfied with his own ending or else he wouldn't be defensive. Yeah. I th- and I, think I also like a, think. Oh, go ahead. I, I just sorry. I also think that. Yes, he's playing with that, but I believe he believes in redemption mm-hmm. and he's talked about this. So I think he believes in capacity for change. And I think he's not necessarily saying Roland's always going to go. I don't think he believes Roland's always going to make the same mistakes. I think he believes that Roland can change yeah, and and that this is his chance to change. I don't know if King thinks about maybe he won't even look for the tower this time. Maybe. He's a smart guy. Yeah, I I think though that's pretty spot on though with like the path to recovery because it's like even if you're still in it, it seems like you may not get there, but there's still hope at the end. And I think the fact that maybe he does have the horn this time, you know, it's we may not get there with him, but there's still hope that he could get there. It's not to give up. Um, And I I could see too not being it's like an athlete retiring, losing a championship game or something. It's like, oh, I wish I would have won, but that doesn't take away from the career. And, you know, him making that comment of confusing an orgasm with making love. I think that's a great <laughs> assessment of his own work. And, I, you know, I a wish very he wasn't. Kingian phrase. Yeah, yeah, I wish he wasn't. And I mean, later later we can talk about alternative theories, but I, I cannot, I've not heard a better ending than what King actually put out there. And I'm sure deep down he knows there is one, but I don't know that anyone's ever landed on it, even him. And I think that's what eats at him is he knows there's a better ending out there. It's but, his tower. Uh, it's his tower. But we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that because I have some quotes um, that I think speak to it. And this is also very telling is, and this is something I hadn't heard before. King has said that he's around 2010, 2011, 2012, that era. He said he wanted to rewrite the books. Um, He even said to Ain't It Cool News, he said, but the books themselves aren't done. I was saying this in the panel. I'd like to rewrite them. Whether or not I'll actually get that chance, I don't know. But I'd like to because uh, to me, they're a first draft. And the most telling one, and this is from an interview that he did with Neil Gaiman in the Sunday Times, uh, and this isn't even a quote. This is something that Neil Gaiman has paraphrased. Uh, He said, now he's finished the story. He is trying to decide how much now that he has finished the story, he's trying to decide how much he can rewrite it. If he views the sequence as one very long novel, can he do a second draft? He hopes so. Currently, Stephen King is a character in the fifth and sixth Dark Tower books, and Stephen King, the nonfictional author, is wondering whether to take him out of the next draft. That, to me, is fascinating. And if it wasn't Neil Gaiman, I'd think that maybe it was bullshit, but I I don't believe that Neil Gaiman is, like, lying. (laughs) And um, and then but it does seem he gave up on those uh, on those ambitions pretty quickly, because around the same time, he said in the Dark Tower Companion, when he was asked, do you still plan to go back and revise the other books to bring them all into line? King said, I don't know if it's a project that anyone would care about. And I'm a little bit leery about doing it. The first book really had to be done because it had to be brought in line with the way the book seven ends. If I went if I went and rewrote the rest of them, I know that I could do work that would please me as an author. But I think that a lot of people might pick up the books and pay the money and say, geez, I don't know why I bought this. He sold me the same book. The changes would be there, but they would be subtle. The real Dark Tower junkies would know. But for the general reader, I don't think so, which sounds that doesn't sound like him removing himself from the books because that would be a much bigger change. So I think this is these are ideas that maybe he was grappling with, maybe in bursts of emotion or uh, for very short periods. But they, I think they they reveal a lot. And um, 
And we'll talk more about that in a minute. For now, let's talk about the critical reception. I've got two reviews here that I think sum up the the yin and the yang, the good and the bad. Um, one is from the New York Times. That's not to say there is nothing to enjoy about the Dark Tower. For starters, there is the sheer absurdity of, his, of its existence. You're left astonished at the devotion of the readers who will follow King down his labyrinthian pathways of plot through the thickets of all caps paragraphs only to emerge from a story within a flashback. As a writer, King is willing to describe anything, no matter how hackneyed or strange the scenario. The high point might be when Susanna, already plagued by two personalities, is invaded by a third personality who somehow becomes pregnant. More fascinating, perhaps, is King's inexhaustible supply of similes and metaphors, which he seems to write about without a backwards glance. Every so often, they are unpleasantly memorable, like this description of a beach. It was the color of an undergarment, which has gone a long time without washing. As for Roland and his quartet, they continue their reality-bending trip in this new book, but it's harder to care about them. You can see the puppet strings, and the suspense sinks to the level of a B-horror film. Which character is going to get killed first? The fictional king also returns, and we learn how this series was the one story he had no control over, the one he could write only when the voices in his head were speaking to him. In the end, King doesn't have the writerly finesse for these sorts of games, and the voices let him down. The ultimate battle borrows a device from the Harry Potter books, and at the foot of the Dark Tower, the voices throw up their hands. Some moments are beyond imagination. That's the sound of a writer shouting mercy. King has talked about retiring after the publication of this book. But that seems unlikely. He's unburdened himself of his sprawling fantasy, and he's free to write something new. If we've learned anything about King by the close of this series, it's that he's terrified of endings. That's the New York Times. It's a little the harsh, w- man. I, I don't know. I disagree with the the King lacking the finesse to describe those those scenarios they're talking about. Just I I I don't know. Maybe it's a hot take. I think that. In the Dark Tower books, I do think this is some of his best prose, just descriptively, action-wise, uh, the horror sequences, the characterizations, all that. And I agree with what they say about King grappling with endings. I, I don't know. Honestly, I feel like that review is not meeting King where he is at that time in his life because I think so much of this book is still him grappling with the fallout of the car accident, the threat of him not being able to write again and sort of sorting out what, an ending for himself looks like as a, as an author, um, which I had more thought. Anyway, I, I just, I disagree with, with a lot of that review. That's I disagree. Adam I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm saying like, I disagree. Safety brothers. Uh, Anna. I do think King hates endings. You know, one of the big criticisms of King sort of gestured at there is he's always rewriting, his book, always rewriting his books. He's always yeah. going back to the same ideas. He's always having teacher protagonists, <laughs> you know, and very interested in childhood and very interested in, in, rites of passage and all that I don't think that's a I guess the thing I would say is I don't think that's bad I I don't think that being interested in new like again I sort of see this as King's kind of like spiritual side almost I I feel like I'm mentioning recovery too much but I, I don't think that's an inaccurate trope or theme to bring up with these books. Well, they're so personal um, in their way. And that is a huge, huge part of, I think, who you who he is and especially who he was at this time. And I think it's perhaps interesting to note that, yes, I, I think he's grappling, obviously grappling with the car crash. I mean, I think that's some of the most affecting writing here is his characterization of the driver that hit yeah. him. It's really like, I'm, it makes me like choke up right now like it's actually a fair amount of empathy for that guy i mean yeah. he's a villain but he's truly drawn 
yeah. now. Yeah. I, um, and I think it might be interesting to note that I believe King maybe didn't like fully count as a relapse, but I know he had an, an issue with pain pills mm-hmm. while he was recovering. And I wonder if that figures into some of this. Yeah. The, you know, well, he writes a lot about pain, actually, like literally writes about pain. In, in book. Well, the idea of starting over, too, I mean, he felt like just in the same way that he felt like he had to start over as a writer when he got clean. Um, he felt like he had to start over as a writer after the accident because everything that was comfortable to him, his entire routine had to be completely upended. And I do think that this idea and then that feeds into, I think, ideas of second chances. I think that there's been a lot of second chances in King's life, which I think is a recurring theme and something I'm going to talk about shortly. Uh, Flieger, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, like, I think, and I agree, I think this criticism is a little too harsh and maybe doesn't understand. And like, I think King genuinely loves his characters. And I think maybe that's why the endings are hard, because he doesn't want to end them, right? He wants to keep following them for years after. And maybe the fact that you're seeing, you know, the Mr. Mercedes trilogy, like he's starting to stick with characters for a little bit longer because I think he wants to be like, okay, that was one adventure, but why can't, you know, why can't this be the Sherlock Holmes where there's a bunch of adventures coming up? Why yeah. do we have to have this definitive ending? So even to like referencing, like, they're like, oh, he kind of borrows from the Harry Potter. It's like, yeah, but he's already been calling out that he's borrowing from Harry Potter. This is not yeah. like a revelation. And Harry Potter borrows from like the Bible or everything of, the, you know, <laughs> All these things thing has of... always been, yeah, that we always borrow. Like right. he, but I, he wears it. So on the whole sleeve, world, yeah. the word pool, right? right. Mm-hmm. Like we all, yeah. we're all diving in the same word, word yeah. pool. Yeah. So I just think like this is kind of a silly criticism. But I also, yeah, like one of my favorite moments in the Stephen King films is when he does a cameo and you see him hug the characters that he created because no. you just think of how happy he was on set when he's like, "Oh, hey, Stu, we did it." You know, you're like he he's thought about this person more than anyone. It's been in his head, and now that it's like personified in front of him and he just seems like a kid in a candy store and like i don't hold that against him i i actually think it's kind of cool that he's not as cynical and it gets me sad sometimes when he comes across as cynical because i think the majority of fans kind of as we were talking before this recording i think most fans don't care about all this other stuff they just like reading the stories yeah okay now for a very good review washington post the seventh and final volume, The Dark Tower, should more than satisfy his voracious readers. It is an absorbing, constantly surprising novel filled with true narrative magic, a fitting capstone to a uniquely American epic. King combines these diverse elements into an archetypal quest fantasy distinguished by its uniquely Western flavor, its emotional complexity, and its sheer imaginative reach. In the course of nearly 4,000 pages, The Dark Tower saga fuses slightly skewed autobiography with an extravagant portrait of an imperiled multiverse. The series as a whole, and this final volume in particular, is filled with brilliantly rendered set pieces, including a stand-up comedy routine that turns unexpectedly lethal, cataclysmic encounters and moments of desolating tragedy. In the end, King holds it all together through sheer narrative muscle and his absolute commitment to his slowly unfolding and deeply personal vision. King has always believed in the primal importance of story and his entire career, encompassing 40 novels and literally hundreds of shorter works, is a reflection of that belief. On one level, the series as a whole is actually about stories, about the power of narrative to shape and color our individual lives. It is also beneath its Baroque extravagant surface about the things that make us human, love, loss, grief, honor, courage, and hope. On a deeper level still, it is a meditation on the redemptive possibility of second chances, a subject King knows intimately. In bringing this massive project to conclusion, King has kept faith with his readers and made the best possible use of his own second chance. The Dark Tower is a humane, visionary epic and a true magnum opus. It will be around for a very long time. 
Reviews don't get better than that. That's uh, sorry. I was looking to unmute myself. I was going to say that's a five noser review. If I've ever <laughs> heard one, no, I, I, it's like I said before, I do think, and I know it's become a kind of a cliche thing to say about King's work at this point, because his work did start becoming so intertwined with his personal life and him learning to write again and yada, yada, yada from Dreamcatcher all the way to on writing to, you know, any other book that came out around this time. But I do think that's an accurate assessment. This is just as much about storytelling and him figuring out how to finish this as it is Roland's quest, um, which once again, I think is why some of the messiness doesn't quite bother me because I feel like more than any other book, maybe except for on writing, I think we are getting a psychological rabbit hole in, into how King thinks and feels and what he values and everything. And I don't know, I, you know that old Stanley Kubrick quote where he says, uh, or maybe it's not, maybe it's not Kubrick doing the quote, but it's about The Shining. And someone said, you know, Kubrick is a man who thinks too much and feels too little and King is a man who feels too much and thinks too little. I don't think mm. either of those things are true, but someone said that when talking about The Shining. I do think it's true that King kind of writes heart first, head second. And, and I think that's a strength of this book. And I think the reviews talking about that a little bit too, like how he's not, yeah, he's not architecting it the way that uh, Tolkien or someone else will, but he, he's just sort of like going off of his guts. And um, that just gives the book a kind of narrative momentum to me that maybe Song of Susanna didn't have. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to read the synopsis before we pop into the hook. Uh, let me read it here. At the outset of the final installment of our saga, Roland's cotet is scattered across several different wheres and whens. Susanna Dean, still in the clutches of the demon Mia, is in Endworld's Fetic Dogen, a chamber of horrors where magic and technology can be merged and where a monstrous half-human child can be brought forth into the world. Eddie Dean and Roland Deschain are in Maine, 1977, searching for the site of otherworldly walk-in activity and a possible doorway back to Midworld. Jake Chambers, Father Callahan, and the Bumbler Oi are battling vampires and low men in New York's Dixie Pig restaurant circa 1999, a place where long pig is definitely on the menu. As soon as Arctet reunites, they must journey to the headquarters of Thunderclap's wolves in order to discover exactly why the Crimson King's minions have been culling the brains of young children for twin telepathy enzymes. The answer is more horrible than they realized and bears directly upon Roland's quest to reach the Dark Tower. It's always fun to read synopses for like the eighth book, seventh books in a series. It's just a bunch of fucking gobbledygook <laughs> if, to people. If who you hadn't, if you were just picking this up in the store and reading that, you'd be like, <laughs> "What the? This is just like word salad." Yeah. Can, does it? I get. Do they really say twin enzymes? I don't remember it being super specific. I just I remember. remember oh yeah, they phrase. need the twin brains. Yeah, yeah like I need a story. I, I, I also thought. <laughs> They don't discover that in this, though. Don't they already know why they... Am I making that up? I feel like we knew well, that information. Well, the enzymes may be new, but I'm, they already... <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> the you twin, twin times, I twin times. being in the book. I'm going to look like, and see if enzymes is... I'm going to use yeah, the like feature. I feel like this is like an intern at Harper... Or, you know, at Simon <laughs> & Schuster or something being like, oh, I got to make some fucking sense out of this. <laughs> Yeah, no, because I, I maybe, there is no enzyme. Maybe right, yeah, the word enzyme does not appear in this book. Maybe I'm blurring the books together, but I feel like we uh, they're actually talking about facts that we already know from books five and six. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's maybe. Just interesting. I mean, I think we understand. I think with a lot of like the stuff in in these books, we get the broad <laughs> strokes. We don't need to understand. We talked about this in the last book. Like, it's not necessarily necessary to like understand the enzymes of it all. It's more just like <laughs> we get it, you know. Um, 
They're fucking with the twins' brains. Enzymes. That's, yeah, really, that's I, I really think, funny. I think for a casual reader, too, again, like it, people who are on a podcast that really go over the minutiae, I think the average person is like, I'll take your word for it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they don't, they're like twin I, enzymes that eat the brain to get the knowledge. I don't know if that's quite how brain consumption would work. <laughs> However, they don't even say how they eat the They don't even say how they get the brains to the breakers. It's like, like it's, it's like, oh, they're like fed to them. And you're like, it's probably in the form of like a protein bar or something I th- no like... i thought they're in the pills aren't they is it Maybe pills i thought it was the pills, pills? That they... i guess it's pills i mean I think it, it's pills. it doesn't matter right but it doesn't matter right it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. I, I just I, brains, I, I had a period i was writing i worked at random house and i wrote blurbs and i'm just like thinking about the poor the poor thing yeah like, <laughs> the, just... the, i always think about during the uh pandemic uh yeah, I was watching a lot of HBO. Hey, I still watch a lot of HBO. I love HBO. And I remember I came across like they had the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and they it was the first one. And I remember the synopsis was just uh something like teens must contend with the diseased brain of Freddy Krueger. Like that's all it says. <laughs> I was like, who the fuck are hey, is this brain diseased? I don't think that's really a thing of the series. And also it just like didn't get at any of what the movie was about. But I had the same thought. I'm like, oh, it's probably some intern during a very stressful time right now that had to write this, but it was just like, yeah, that's what I think of whenever I think of either inaccurate or just odd synopses. That's funny. Okay. Uh, when we're talking the hook, we're talking, Oh yeah. Okay. I got to do the intro. Michael get mad. Uh, yeah. Get those transitions down, man. Come on. <laughs> time for the hook. Oh, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. All right, here in The Hook, we talk about the themes, the ideas, uh, what it is we really took from this one. And so, you know, with a book like this, it's pretty wild because I think there's a, a, you know, just a confluence of so many, so many different themes. And um, I I have, you know, obviously we've talked about a few. Uh, We talked about second chances. Um... And we talked about kind of notions of history repeating itself uh, and King sort of taking the optimistic view that change is possible. Like if you repeat yourself enough times, uh, you know, things can change. You can break that cycle to some degree. I think it's uh, I like what you said, Anna, the idea of resets being good. Um, resets are difficult. Like I think the despair that Roland feels in those final moments when he realizes He's like looped back to the beginning uh, that that overwhelming despair fades pretty quickly. And um, it's about taking it head on again and maybe doing better this time around. So um, I think that's one that stood out for me. And then also the idea of selfishness, um, like single mindedness, spoiling community is something that really stood out to me. Um, and they do it. I think King does a, a nice job of of contrasting Roland with the Crimson King and showing that in some ways they're really not that different because the Crimson King wants the tower for entirely selfish reasons of his own. He writes that he wants to reach the tower in uh, solely just to beat Roland there. And, uh, and like, it has nothing really to do with the larger implications like he wants to you know he wants to rule over this blighted land or whatever but he's driven by intensely selfish desires which in the kind of the whole latter uh quarter of the book you know that's when we really start to see roland lose a lot of the stoicism and um and the integrity that he seems to have always had and the selfishness of his own journey really emerges and and we see how that has 
you know, broken their quartet in a lot of ways. I mean, Susanna, Susanna's anger at him comes from knowing that he'll choose the tower over his friends any day. And I think that is, um, you know, the tragedy of Roland. So um, what other sort of, I don't know, any ideas here that stand out to you? Well, I just thought it was funny that the Crimson King is so petty. Like, oh, yeah, I want to yeah. get there first. It's just like, mm-hmm. it's such a silly thing. I kind um, of love the Crimson King. I know people yeah. take issue with how he's just this liter- a literal one note, um, crazy old man. But I think that's very much in, well, it's in line with the theme that you have written down, Randall. I'll wait till we get to it. But um, Fleeger, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think we check out our King, our Crimson King episode that we, we released recently. But I mean, I think he's supposed to be the devil, right? It's a red evil king. And, and Santa Claus. Yeah, and Santa Claus. Yeah, and he looks like Santa Claus. Um, <laughs> never seen it the same place twice. Lightbringer, <laughs> Giftbringer, who knows? Um, but I, the idea of like, yeah, this pettiness of like, he wants to be the first among equals, right? Lucifer wanted to be better than humans. So the idea that he's like, well, I want to get to the tower first. And he doesn't know if he wants to destroy it or just get there first. It seems like such a silly motivation, but it kind of makes sense with just this like, he's screeching, he's lost his mind. Yeah. So of course he just All these like, ideas, yeah, I think are really, really relevant in terms of, the way that the Crimson King, like I, I remember being disappointed by him as well when I was young, but it actually, I think it works in, it works in a couple different ways, especially in sort of a broader the, uh, theoretical sense in terms of the people who are actually destroying the world and the banality of that kind of evil. And um, and just the idea of like loony old men screeching from their towers, uh, I think is is very impactful. Um, you know, <laughs> go ahead, Anna. If he wrote it today, he'd make it look like Donald Trump. I know. He wrote yeah, it. Oh, he totally would. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't yeah. have that restraint. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's like, the Crimson King is an orange king instead. <laughs> like, yeah, he like, rewrites he it. He has it's like toffee hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, instead of a big beard, it's just a big... Instead of throwing like, sneeches, like, he would throw like NFTs or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Don't throw NFTs. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I also kind of like the Crimson, Crimson King here the idea that he's a mad king uh and i think his minions are interesting too i i, I think also king may not be intentionally saying this but i think he gets that in other books which is that people who have fealty to some kind of dark lord there's never for very good reasons mm. it's 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 a, in a way like just a, a weakness or a not a weakness but like they're human yeah and it's sort of just a human error almost like they're still like have all the same like thoughts and feelings as anyone else. I think King is pretty good to his red shirts. I think that's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, no, totally. yeah. I, I completely agree with that. Some the like when I think about the blue heaven sequence that reminded me of Vegas in the stand because he doesn't necessarily depict Finley or uh, Pimley or any of these other people as being holy evil they're just sort of basic if that makes sense like the and if, if you look at vegas in the stand it's like oh no this guy was nice to me and i like to have nice clothes and money so i'm gonna do this and that that of course results in laziness and the system breaking down and you, you look at blue heaven P, uh, pimley's the human right from new jersey yep, pimley's yeah. the human I mean, he, he, yeah, it doesn't seem like he's the best guy necessarily, but he, he, he likes doing this because he gets laid a lot. People respect him and uh, he gets along with the people he works with. And it's interesting yeah. because I think it would be, it would be much easier to show it as, you know, I'm, I'm watching stranger like, things right now. Like, oh, like, right. like, like, Oh, we're torturing these people every day and doing this. I'm like, no, they're actually be, they're almost like numbing them into submission because they're making things very comfortable for them. And yeah. I think, I think I love when King does that with his, 
villains, especially when it's the whole community community of antagonists as he does in the stand. I mean, we talked in our stand episodes about how about they've never gotten Vegas right. Either miniseries has never gotten Vegas right because it just depicts them as <laughs> being all in, evil all and leather like, daddies. Oh yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> oh, we love BDSM and torturing people without their consent, you know. And it's like no, I, I they're they're all. I agree with Anna. It's like no, they're all just kind of trying to get by, which of course trying to get by is a big thing, yeah. And it's yeah. and that that's almost a scarier pathway to evil because we could all we're all capable of that to it's an extent, finale, right? Well, right. okay, I'm gonna be taken care of financially. I don't have to think too much about everything, uh, and I enjoy my day to day. Yeah, I'll do whatever this guy tells yeah, me. Like, so, which is we're, we're oh, hurting sorry, people, but there's a fucking foosball table in the break room. So <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I wanna, which is I it's, it's okay, funny ahead, that King has this subtlety when it comes to his, and I guess a, a evil red shirts. Not evil, like they're still red shirts. I guess that's sort of the thing. It's good, bad. They're all red shirts. Um, in his books, he has this generosity to them, and then his his tweets. <laughs> like, I agree. With he you. is he is, and also the way he talks about Christians, right? Like conservative Christians, mm-hmm. which is something that's come up before on the podcast. He's like such a dick about it. And yet when he has character and also even in his books, it's the conservative Christians that he turns into like shallow, like yeah, usually, missed, yeah, yeah, you know, shallow characters who you don't have any sympathy for. Um, but here, yeah, like I actually really like the sort of, you know, um, odd couple of, of Pimley and the Finley weasel. Ortega, the wheeze. Yeah. Finley, I kept getting their names confused, like Pimley. Yeah. And she, she could have done a better job with those names because they're really Dorgan similar. But they have kind of a cool relationship. They're friends. Like, don't they get like a hug? Yeah. Like, they're, yeah. No, they, like, they, meaningful hug that they realize their friendship is pretty serious. Like, I, I think it's an interest. I think it's a good choice. Yeah. I, I, I think like calling him the Wheeze, though, I was just thinking of Polly Shore way too much. But um, <laughs> the Wheeze. But um, oh, yeah, I want to talk about I love that you guys brought all this stuff up. Like I kind of called it like com- the complicity of our own destruction uh, in our own destruction. Because, um, you know, we've talked a lot about in the last episodes about this kind of tension between magic and machines and that the notion of, uh, you know, we let the machines take over and now they're all breaking down and we're we're kind of hopeless in the face of annihilation. And and uh, and Mordred actually has a great line uh, where he talks about, of course, the Crimson King wants to destroy the world like all the machines are broken. So, of course, he wants to start over. And I think that that's really interesting. And all the emphasis on the breakers, not only the breakers, but like you guys mentioned Pimley, the weasel and then like the low men even. And I want to talk about the low men just a little bit more later. But because they actually get so much more, like they get so much more interesting in this book, um, they're just with these little details. But like the way that the breakers are framed is is so interesting because uh, it's really about that these aren't bad people in any way, shape, or form, and also that they're not necessarily being like you know you read Black House and you're like oh like they're being tortured. Uh, to break the beams, you know, like you, th- you imagine this hellish landscape where they're being forced to do this, but then you get blue heaven, which is this very comfortable community and the, the breakers, they like being there. The, there's a comfort that allows them to be lulled into this state of like blissful unawareness. So they know that I think they ambiently know that they are cogs in a machine that's destroying the world. But, you know, but Ted says, like Ted Brodigan and Dinky Earnshaw, they tell the gunslingers like multiple times, don't hate the breakers. Like, because they, they're, they say, 
don't hate them. It's despair that drives them, a fear of what could happen to them. Like, because in the real world, they were rejected and they weren't valued for the talents that they have. They were treated as outcasts here because they keep saying like to break is divine, right? Like breaking is this beautiful talent. And it's like, yeah, here they actually got to utilize what made them special and uh, be treated well in that. And then they were treated well for it. They were given food. They were given luxurious like places to sleep. They were given all the sex that they wanted. And uh, they were rewarded in all those ways. And yeah, Anna, go ahead. I, I think it's interesting also that he talks about the breakers as though that it's this, you know, it is a pleasure. It is divine. It's mm-hmm. a, it, to break is divine. And that this is something that they, it's a, almost a compulsion. Yeah. To do. And I've wondered this before if King thinks of writing as a kind of addiction, as creating as a kind of addiction. Because I, th- I mean, it's pretty transparent that when he talks about breaking, he's talking about writing, mm. right? Like, is it everyone, did other people get that? I, I feel like in the other times he's talked about writing, in both on writing and, and when it's referred to in his book, like it's a kind of like, I have to, you know, like I have these stories inside me. Oh, yeah. I don't he, identify with it. Compulsion is a like word I, he uses often. Yeah. Just, that's not my approach to writing, but <laughs> I think it is his. <laughs> and I think it makes me wonder if he thinks of writing as a kind of selfish act on some level. I, I don't think the self-loathing in this book. It makes me think that. Yeah. Uh, what episode was it recently? I, it was one I was on with Rothman. Maybe it was a Halloween's episode. I can't remember, but he, he did talk about that, how he feels like King's output is also part of that addictive gene he has, right? Uh, and Grant, he's always been prolific, whether he's sober or not sober. But like, regardless, yeah, I, th- I very much think it's um, compulsion is a good word for it, right? Like, I, I mean, we're all writers here to some extent, but I don't know. It's it's different to write and even write well and write a lot, and then just like have it come out of you the way it does for for him. I mean, he gets a, he gets at that too, like the way he's talking about beam breaking and um, what Anna said about comparing that to writing the way he talks about it in song of Susanna where, I mean, we could, we could like kind of turn our noses up, but like, Oh, I'm just the vessel. Right. Cause that's like kind of the cliche thing that a lot of writers say, and it makes you sound like a God, but I, I, I don't know. I, I wonder if the king, if that's how it feels for him yeah, a little I, bit. I, he gets I, it that in the afterward. Yeah. Please. I think like the fact that like, what is he like a lot, like three hours every morning to write or something and, somewhere around there. But I've heard also like some interview recently, someone played poker with him and it was when he was trying to quit smoking. So he would lay out four cigarettes on the poker table and he was like, this is all I'm allowed to smoke. Because I think he knows he has that addictive personality. So he has to limit himself, right? If he didn't get pulled away from the typewriter and have to be with his family, he would be there all day. So I think he knows that you have yeah. to put these limits. But just in terms of like the breakers, it's, you know, they are a cog in the machine. But what would they be in the real world? They would still be helping some, you know, evil company do whatever. At least now they're a little bit of a bigger cog. Right. And they probably yeah, all had these. Or they like, would just be, or I, I think they would just be outcasts. That's, right. that's, I think, the more. That's what I think. Like, I think, like, the talent they have, it's like someone who's extremely good at math and maybe can't function, but then you give them a job where they can create logarithms and you're like, wow, this is at least I can put my energy towards something. So when Jake says, like, you know, they're like, well, what do you want us to do? Just go back to the real world? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, because I think he has a child's understanding of morality and also just, you know, work-life balance. And to him, he's like, how could you possibly do this? And I think in their mind, it's like, well, this isn't much different than what's going on 
in the other worlds. It's just here we're treated better, we better benefits, that kind of thing. We we see it with um Dinky and uh, I wasn't on the episode, the everything's eventual uh, I was episode. About yeah. to bring that up, yeah. Yeah, Randall, who was a Randall Flieger? Uh, where I know Randall was. Were the other two? Yeah, well, I'll remember. just say like everything's eventual is a story that is all about sort of like being complicit in predatory capitalism, and it's because it's really about you know somebody who is an outcast who is who has a very special skill and was re- rewarded for it, but also in a weird way, kept under a thumb. Like the way Dinky operates in that story is he is given a certain amount of money every week, uh, enough that he can, you know, buy whatever he wants, but not enough to really save. And because he has to give away, I think, whatever money he doesn't spend at the end of the week. So it's it's this very much this idea of like locking somebody into um, a gig in a way that monetarily benefits them but doesn't benefit them in the long term and doesn't bring them a lot of joy in life but it keeps them comfortable enough to be controlled and that's very much i think what he's get this i think that whole story everything's eventual extends to this entire breaker uh story in this and in the end the people don't want to leave you know they're like you ruins i mean some of them do but they're by and large the people are like this was a comfortable situation for us and uh you know, we don't want to have to go back to the real world. And that to me was not a direction I expected it to go. Can so. we talk to about, you have this written down, this this kind of um, ties into what we're talking about now, I think, is this idea of the complicity and our own destruction, which, which you wrote. And I, I feel like in this book, there's a lot of just kind of either going along with things and assuming it's going to turn out the way it always turns out or the way, or, or that it's just going to work out in general because it's always worked out for you. And that being everyone's, downfall i mean we see it a little we see it definitely with with uh, finley and pimley we see it with uh the crimson king we see it with randall flag we see it with mordred we see it with roland to an extent just this um I, I don't i don't know if it's vanity per se but just like assuming that systems are going to be in place right like mm. i think every single one of those characters they have almost kind of a mundane you could say lame and unsatisfying downfall to an extent but i actually think it's very much in line with with cause wheel and what this book is trying to say in that we're all at the mercy of forces bigger than ourselves. And regardless of how much you try and fight back against that, you're, you're probably going to get fucked either way, if that makes sense. Um, and I don't mean the book is negative because I don't think it is, but you just see all these very powerful characters being undone by mundanity. If that yeah, makes yeah. Sense. I, yeah, so. I want to, we'll talk about Mordred later. Cause I think that arc is fascinating. Oh, it's great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Anna, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, this is what I thought Dan might get at and did a little bit, which is, or uh, Caffrey, I have to remember to use the last names here. <laughs> Either way. Uh, uh, that to a certain extent, if we talk about his sympathy that, that King has to his, his red shirts um, and that they are just workaday folks or that they don't, they've thrown their lot in and that's what they're, that's the direction they go. To a certain extent, that's what I started thinking about Susanna in the last you know, journey of the book, I kept on being like, why are you here, lady? Like my friend, you know, you're miserable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what What are you doing? Like, this is not your journey. This is, and she even like, doesn't really have the same, there's a point I remember because it stood out to me. I think it's with her or maybe it's earlier on with, uh, with Jake and Eddie, one of them says something like, oh, but I too want to see the beam. We all want to see where we all want to see the tower. And I was like, no, you don't. Yeah. No, you don't. He's like, convinced that's not- them. Like Susanna says at one point that Roland has a glamour too. Like, cause they talk about glamour yeah. a lot and that's the glamour, right? Is making 
these people think that they want what he wants, you know? And in the end, after Eddie dies, after Jake dies, after, you know, they're walking in this horrible fucking like wasteland all these all these months or whatever, it's like it's it's like you fucking fooled me, you know? Like I don't need to be here. We freed the breakers. The 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 beam is rebuilding itself. And I, I wish Roy had gone with it. We'll talk about it later. But just, you wish what? Roy didn't. Roy. Oh, I know. Roy we'll talk about Roy. Mm. <sighs> okay. Bad. Um, thinking about that one. But yeah, like, but I think like along these same lines, uh, you know, I was I I spent a lot of time reading and rereading kind of what it was that really, um, I think, flipped that switch for Susanna, where she really realized, uh the glamour that Roland had put up. And it's when uh, she, he lies and it's a very subtle way that he lies because basically he knows that Patrick can, has like the shine to some degree and that he can see into people's minds. And what essentially happens that I found really interesting was that um, when Patrick is, or basically Patrick is given the choice, do I go with Susanna back to the main world or do I stay with Roland on his quest to the tower? Roland gives Susanna a look that says, I'm not letting him look into my mind, but she knows he's lying. And what basically Roland is inviting Patrick into his mind to show him and basically say, I need you to come with me. And she knows that Patrick doesn't want to do that. And that if he does go, he'll basically die like everyone is dying who follows Roland. And that's what pisses her off so much is this... um, is that even in this moment where he could let people go and pursue his own journey, he's still trying to get people to come with him because he doesn't want to be alone. And that's what is like so fucking sad is like when he breaks down and gets on his knees and like begs her to stay with him. Because in the end, it's like that single minded pursuit. He still chooses that even though it makes him miserable. And that to me is like tremendously sad. And then he but the thing is, you still see that growth after Susanna leaves. He has that moment where he talks about his heart reopening and allowing his heart to reopen and that he did accomplish that and that he wouldn't take that back no matter what. And that to me is like a real moment of growth for him. But it doesn't it still doesn't uh, dispel that desire to go to the tower and take and he doesn't want to go alone, even though he knows it'll result in people's deaths. And that's like the ultimate selfishness of that character and what makes him. And it's probably the most compelling I found him throughout this entire series, because you see that that weakness and that vulnerability that it took seven books to get up to. And that's like tremendously powerful to me. Yeah, it's it's funny for me with uh, and I agree with like what you're saying, too. It is like there's a disappointment with the selfishness, but I'm also looking at the characters there and it's like, what did you think was like? You know, it's like a guy pursuing the Holy Grail. You think at a certain point he's going to be like, oh, come on, let's just, you know, let's just head back and go to Chili's or something. It's like, no, <laughs> when they met him, kind of like what they were getting in for. And you could argue whether they had a choice in following him. But it's not to me a surprise that they're like, this guy is so obsessed with it. And when they're like, wow, he seems like he really is obsessed. And it's just like, yeah, what did you expect? Like, this is who he is. I mean, this is. Yeah. This is but like I said, I think it's part of the it's it's the journey, right? It's like they've been on this journey. He has convinced them of the importance of it. And they have like and I think like Susanna wants to believe all this time that all the sacrifice has been worth it. And it's that moment when he lies to her and the moment when and I like that there is a little bit of doubt in there, too, because it's basically those those twins that look like Stephen King at the castle who basically say you don't need to go to the tower because um because the beam is already rebuilding itself and the, and the Crimson King will just be there forever and everything will be fine. You don't have to go. And I like, I like that it's, he's this, these are unreliable narrators. These like 
these three twins. So there isn't the sense that, you know, that is the absolute truth, but it raises that idea there in a way that I think is really powerful. And it's what I think, you know, I think Roland would go on anyways, but it's what really, I think it's what makes him want to bring everyone with him. Uh, that and just that desire not to be alone. And so, um, I don't know. It's, it to me is like a really, I think that's like one of the more powerful parts of the ending is, uh, is that confrontation and and the sort of sad like oi is like so sad because oi knows by sticking with roland he's going to his death and just like depressed oi in those last pages is so sad and so um, fucking pointless sorry like well i think do that, they really need oi to like but that's i think the point the i think the pointlessness <laughs> is the point right like because it it didn't need to be that way. And Roland basically coerced it into being that way, which is why Susanna is so mad at him. Um, and I think that Oi also kind of knows that. Too. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. He's not happy. He, he hates Roland. Yeah. You know? And that's, it's like, like such a tragic ending. Like, yeah. out of all the deaths in this, and this is one of my questions I have is like, which one hit you the most? Uh, because there's so many deaths and it was easy far and away it was boy <laughs> yeah but hey he's i think he's going to get reincarnated as a corgi that gets adopted by them well, later that's, on yeah, yeah that's, right? that's yeah. totally that's true he's gonna be a corgi that, right does he I, that did, is it's so funny because i thought i remembered him specifying that it was a corgi but i don't think he does actually i think just because no, after he the doesn't. fact he, he's well, corgi he, obsessed and boy yeah. he definitely is modeled after a corgi we do meet marlo the corgi which was yeah. one of king's real dogs yeah <laughs> in the book. love it um yeah i'm curious like do you guys feel similarly when it came to the deaths in this book like was like, like did eddie's death hit you did jake's death hit you like which ones hit you it, it uh, was Catherine? um it was a progression like callahan is callahan you're like oh nuts but you're like okay i expected that and it was just a treat to get to see him again from salem's lot eddie's was a little bit harder for me but i don't know eddie seems so doomed throughout the series anyway that maybe it wasn't surprising and then jake really got to me also because i think the writing around jake's death both the leading up to it and the burial and everything is just gorgeous like a, we'll get to it in word processor and also that roland jake... doesn't see him die is what kills me oh it's it, I, he just looks back right and there yeah. you go jake was dead and and all... time to king yeah and also jake's death comes so soon after eddie's and you're just like oh shit like and then you start to realize what's going on and then always just i mean a it's an animal always harder um I, what you all just said the fact that oi knows what's coming for him and, and oh god when he licks his hand and says olin at the like yeah. i just like and it's so yeah, and yeah like, oh. like it like it's that pointlessness that you mentioned on it that's what kills me because oi knows it too and it's like it's being swept up in ka right like or at least what roland has told you is ka and i love that they say like ka doesn't exist beyond this certain border but then they're like no but it does yeah but I love that it's like it's and it's it may or may not. It's maybe Roland is glamoring, like he's convincing you that Ka exists beyond this. And, and that's like yeah. Shimi too. Like like such yeah, a uh, cruel, a cruel uh, death that we don't but once again, that, that doesn't you could on the one hand be like, that's unnecessary, that's cruel. I don't I don't think it I mean it is cruel, but I think that's the point. I think Yeah, I I, I think it's a, a an earned cruelness. Yeah, I think I think it's just I mean it's the death death gunslinger, but not for you, right? I mean that's yep. like the that's what we're seeing throughout this whole novel. Um and it's once again, I don't know, you um, I don't want to talk about the ending ending too much because I think we're we have a lot to say about that. But um but yeah, for me the deaths were sort of increment or um increasingly uh hard-hitting and severe as we went on yeah i think with eddie too it was so abrupt um i had to like rewind because i was like wait did he just get shot because i totally had forgot sort of the order that the characters depart from the journey 
Um, and it literally, it's like, right, it's the end of the battle. And then it's just like, bam, he has a hole in him. And then the chapter yeah. ends and you're like, wait, I'd forgotten that? about that too. Right. Yeah. And it took me a second. I was like, wait, is that, that was kind of abrupt there, but that's how it is in battle too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Eddie's death didn't quite hit me. And I think it has to do with the fact that I was, I've never really been all that charmed by Eddie and B that it does kind of happen so abruptly with this minor character with Pimley. And then, um, and then, yeah, it, it, it's funny yeah. like the, the death just the nature of the deaths they're all so pathetic like dead mm-hmm. like eddie gets shot after the battle's over by a guy you think is dead already jake gets hit by i mean jake is at least doing something important but he just gets hit what hit by a van and then um, dies off screen yeah shimi dies from like radi- radiation off screen or whatever um uh, he's, yeah he o- stepped on a piece of glass yeah or he gets thrown onto like a thorn bush i mean they're they're like the, that and even flag i mean flags uh, is we'll, we'll oh flag, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway but like they're all in mordred yeah like, i mean kind of like you know, the Mord- with the the this like eating a sick horse, this is the shitting himself essentially is what leads to his death. And so they all had these pathetic deaths, which I, once again I think is very much intentional. And I think you don't. Sorry, it's uh, my little oy barking. Um, I, and I think is uh, I think is very much in there and playing into the themes of 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 Ka and like everything being cruel and the path Roland has taken them all onto. I'm gonna mute myself while Hank, but my Cujo continues uh, barking. Yeah, Anna. I think that I think it's something of a theme in King where correct me if I'm actually maybe projecting or misremembering, but I think he he tends to think that death is pathetic. Mm. That it is not ne- yeah. that that there's not necessarily a heroism in death. I think he shies away from heroic death in general. Um because I I think death has touched him. And he knows that most of us meet kind of pedestrian ends and it's a tragedy. Yeah. Like it, it's all always a tragedy and it's part a tragedy because it's somewhat pointless because like it didn't have to happen. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking is that all these deaths, then their patheticness, especially hopefully is part of teaching Roland the errors of his ways. Yeah. That the gunslingers don't die in a blaze of glory. Right. Even, um, uh the kid in jake's friend benny he died oh, benny, yeah. yeah he dies kind of a pathetic death too yep. like and also he's a bystander right and mm. and it, it it i think there's something that maybe roland's supposed to see here what? that that these are not her these are not heroic deaths yeah. that he has put yeah. these people through something that again didn't have to happen yeah and i think it becomes the argument of is it worthy to sacrifice them or maybe to sacrifice his quest? And I think that's maybe what he's starting to learn is maybe I do need to give up on this Dark Tower thing. Like, is it worth the trade-off for all of these people dying? And also, too, just like with war, the majority of deaths are from, like, infection or disease. You know, people don't get shot in the heart on the front line and, you know, it happens. But majority is just like these yeah. sort of, oh, someone got dysentery and, you know, someone stepped on this and got an infection. So it is kind of accurate to that, which I think is kind of cool. But I, I would, I guess, I would say Jake, it is kind of a pathetic death, but it's, I mean, he did save King, so I'll give him. Yeah, Jake's is a, like doing the mission. Give him but his it, flowers. But it's, yeah. it's sort of the presentation of it, right? right. Like, yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not yeah. romantic, but it's, he did It's not battle. romantic. And also, is this, this is, I mean, Blue Heaven turns out to be their side quest, right? Yeah, yeah. In terms yeah. of what Roland thinks. They have to convince him to do that, that it's the most important thing that they can do. And and King is part of you know like the the larger quest. Yeah. Um, 
I so wonder if well, and think King about isn't sort of part of the side quest anyway. Like think about like uh, ought to mention pedestrian deaths. Think of if King had died in the van accident, which I'm obviously very glad he didn't. I think so is he. But I think part of maybe what he's working on is in this is that would have been a literal pedestrian death, right? Like him walking. Can you imagine if that if that's how King had gone out, like before he'd finished the Dark Tower, before he had cranked out. I mean, we've gotten so many good books from him since then. If the way he had died was, oh yeah, I was walking and a guy who is a bad driver and was tending to his rowdy dogs accidentally hit him in a van and like, that's fucking awful. Like he didn't, he didn't and I die. I think that what you're talking yeah. about, Dan, that's something I know Anna and I talked about a lot on the Dreamcatcher episode is, mm-hmm. is like, is how quickly death can happen and how stupidly it can happen, like yes. how dumb it can be. And I, and you know, there is a line that Mordred has that I'm going to talk more about later, which is about when Mordred is getting sick and he's like, this isn't how like, uh, a deity like me should die. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm this great thing. I can't die shitting myself. And I feel like, <laughs> obviously I don't think King thinks himself a God, but I do think we all have that moment where we, cause we know ourselves so intimately that we're like, and if you are dying in, or you, you, you potentially could have died in some way. It's like, is that really how I would have gone? And I think that is like the kind of question King turns over in his head all the time in mm-hmm. these years following uh, the accident is like, is that, that could have been it. And that is something that just like courses through all of these books in the aftermath, especially these. Um, Go ahead, Anna. And why not me, right? Yeah. And why why was I saved? And I think that's part of the reason he's in this book, in these books, is that he believes he or he's toying with the idea that he had a specific purpose, right? Mm -hmm. That like there is a thing that he is supposed to do. And that is why he is saved. Now, well, I have thoughts about that, but maybe yeah. I'll just see. I have a question kind of circling around that. I think we'll we'll talk more in a second. But speaking of death, while we're here, let's talk about Flag. Um, <laughs> this was deeply, <laughs> deeply shocking to me when I read it when I was um, when I first read it. Um, I never I realized I never told my story, but it's not that exciting. Um, so I'll just skip ahead. But I do remember reading uh, that and being crushingly disappointed. Because I think I wanted him to be the big bad. And and there is still part of me that does. I have very much come around on the Mordred Crimson King stuff. Um, but almost, I think, more on an intellectual level than a storytelling or narrative level. Because I can't get over how cool it would be if, because Mordred is following Roland and Susanna throughout the whole latter part of the book, how great it would have been. And if we, if we begin with Roland following the man in black through the desert, and then the man in black is following them to the tower at the end, I like became very obsessed with this notion of a flag being the Mordred, like playing the Mordred role. And um, I, I still think part of me really wants that because I feel like all of his books have been building to that. And we also get these wonderful details about flags, actual life, like as Walter when he was young in these chapters before he's murdered so unceremoniously. And um, and I, I'm in this like dual place where I can see why King did it. And I think but I don't think it and I and also that I like Mordred, but I still don't think it had to happen that way. Um, and I remain very disappointed by it. Uh, what do you think, Fleer? Um, Yeah. And it's, again, this Randall and I love talking wrestling terms, but the term put over. <laughs> And basically yeah. flag put over Mordred. And it's the idea of you yeah. take someone who's respected and seasoned and a veteran and they let a new and up and comer beat them. So we're supposed yeah. to be like, wow, if this guy could beat him, he must inherit, you know, all of that. But I'm not team Mordred at all. And I, I'm a big flag head. 
And I really think this was supposed to be like, look how evil and powerful Mordred is if he could just, you know, control Flag. But I was very disappointed. I remember the first time reading it being like, that was not a good end for him. You know, I take some solace knowing that he'll probably reincarnate in some way or the other. But, <laughs> but rereading it, I was yeah. like getting to that point, and I, like it happened so quickly too. There's a few yeah, fun moments of like, and then Mordred just shits himself. Yeah, you know, yeah. like in into weakness, he doesn't shit himself. And, and to you think of like who right. you get behind, like who's more charismatic? And I, I can't think of many people that are like, oh, my boy Mordred took out Flag. Good job. Like I think it probably upset a lot of people. And I'm, I'm curious if King was conscious or if he thought people would read that and be like, wow, Mordred must be awesome. I think it's I think it's a, a narrative crossroad. Uh, and he, the thing is. What I think I took from this book that I'm going to talk more about when we get to heroes and villains, because I want that's where I kind of want to talk about Mordred, is I found it very edifying the entirety of the Mordred Crimson King storyline. And what I think I took from the book on this read that was most edifying to me comes from that. And Flag is not involved with it. But I do think that the other narrative path that involves Flag may have been a more satisfying book, but it might not have the uh, thematic weight that I think we get from um, the Mordred uh, Crimson King story that I'm going to talk about later. But for me, it's like, I think it's the... Uh, uh, it feels like a waste to me still, even then. And I'm I'm really torn between loving the direction it goes in a lot of ways and also being obsessed with what could have been. Um, and and also, uh, you know, that disappointment will always be there, especially because The Stand was my first book and Randall Flagg is my favorite villain, aside from Henry Bowers. And um, I will, I don't know, it's it, it just bums me out. Caffrey, how did you feel about this? I, it didn't bother me even at the time when I read it. And I now I, I'll be honest, when I first read it, I don't think I was thinking about a lot of the larger thematic implications that we're talking about today. Um, I think I, was, I just thought it was like, oh, cool. Flag got taken out, right? That's a big move. <laughs> I, th I think that's how I was thinking about it back then. Thinking about it now, though, I, I love that Flag gets taken out in this unceremonious way. And then it sets up Mordred to be the big bad. And Mordred's not even really the big bad if you think about it either. And I think to me, it gets at this theme that we're all middle management to an extent, even the mm. Crimson King, right? Like the, the top dog who never gets taken out is this force that none of us ever see. And we never really get to fully know in the book. And so I do agree with you, like just from a pure episodic standpoint or an action movie standpoint, or if they were doing the film adaptation, right? What you said, Randall, I love the poetry of that. Like, okay, the man black is following them now. But I I do think it, that all just thematically goes against what this book is trying to sure. do. Um, I just love the... Once again, the patheticness of it, too. And I, I will say, too, the death itself has some really good uh, descriptions that I'll read in the cemetery. There's just yeah. a lot of, like, oh, gooey, he, gooey stuff. He's like, I got to give him that. You know? Oh, yeah, it's like maximalist. Yeah, so yeah. yeah I, I wasn't bothered by it. And um, I think, too, we've got, especially at this point, because Flag pops up in a few books after uh, the Seventh Dark Tower. Um, but in a yeah, I don't know. I think we just, way, we just yeah. yeah, and very, yeah, he's, it's very different in um i don't want to spoil anything yeah, but we want to yeah yeah but i uh, i yeah i don't know i think too there was maybe a sense that okay cool we, we gotten a lot of flag by that point you know like take his ass out uh, but although yeah is it is it more satisfying to see a um uh, where spider who he just meets sucking out his eyes or is it more satisfying to see roland like run after him and shoot him right probably yeah, the and i think just <laughs> what ladder. I think just what I get bummed out too is like there was a lot of time spent in Song of Susanna setting up that Flag had plans to sort of usurp. And I think it sucks that we don't get that. And we get more of that here. Like 
Flag talks about what he wants to do mm. and he's totally curtailed, you know? And I think that was something that disappointed me too, because I remember very much looking forward to that. Cause I was like, oh shit, like Flag's going to be that henchman but who comes up, you know? Do you, do you think that there's any satisfaction in the subvert? Because the way, oh, this well, con- yeah, yeah. The, the way the conversation starts off with Mordred, it's the same conversation he had with Lloyd Henry in the jail cell. And it's yeah. the same conversation he has with Trash Can Man when he meets him or Drogan or Horgan or whoever the fuck. You know, <laughs> we, we've seen Flag sort of spin his threads and seduce people and promise them things. Spin and his th- threads. Yeah, no, yeah, and then it's just like, yeah, then it's just boom. Like, that did not work on this spider creature at yeah, all. Yeah, that's nice a good way to like, look at it. I love yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Anna, what do you think? I was disappointed. Uh, I do think he's one of the better characters in the King universe. and But it is a reminder that he is middle management. And yeah. that's something I believe we've talked about before. Although it's funny with you with y'all. I sometimes think I was on the stand episodes because that's when I was a listener. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we wish you could have been on the stand. As we discussed on the stand episodes. I mean, I had the conversation in my head. <laughs> yeah. you pr- but I feel like you probably talked about the stand at some point with us, right? Yeah, the stand oh, yeah. Comes up, so, yeah, so much, yeah. yeah. A good um, reminder for all parasocial relationships out there, too. If you try hard enough, you'll eventually join the podcast you listen to. Yes, so. that's right. I remember I just shot, I shot my shot. I shooted my shot. And I was like, hey, I just want to be on. Yeah, you just Here messaged me and you were just like, can I be on your podcast? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, okay, cool. Uh, let's talk about the ending a little bit more. Um like, I guess my big question here, we've already danced around the ending a lot. And I, but I guess my question I want to ask right now is obviously I'm just assuming none of us took King's advice to, to not read more, you know, like King said, basically. <laughs> I've never met it. anyone who's done that. I, I thought about doing it for that. this one as a joke being like, guys, I put it down. <laughs> but, I didn't read it. Well, it's like so funny. And, and this, and I'm going to talk more about that request specifically uh, on the next question, because it's fascinating to me. And, um, is how annoyed he seems at having had to write Roland going into the tower. And that's my question is, did he even have to write it? He feels like he had to, but it feels like he did it for the fans more than anything. Uh, And that he's resentful of the fans for that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Did you, in retrospect, do you wish you hadn't read it? Do you wish you ended it like when he approaches the tower? Um, Or are you glad, do you find it edifying that you follow him in? What do you guys think? I mean, it's like pre knowledge Garden of Eden. Like, I'm going to eat those apples. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I completely do agree. not push that, the button. Yeah. I'm pushing the button. And you're button. supposed to. Yeah. God actually wants you to eat those eat those apples. Exactly. Yeah. Actually. Um, I, yeah. I think. I don't know. I think that's maybe King having a little bit of a tantrum at, <laughs> at the demands that his fans make of him, which I think you can sense in, in some of his later books. You get. Well, also, there's misery, right? Jeez. Not just later books. Um, he has a, you know, somewhat fraught relationship with his fans. And I do think you sometimes feel like they make demands of him. And that's another, I mean, this idea that his writing is in a form of addiction is interesting to me in part because I think he, he probably would write if no one read it, you know, like he would just continue to write. And I think that's fascinating. I'm not sure. I'd be interested to know if that's true for anyone else on this podcast i'm i don't know i don't know if i would if i would write beyond like a journal like would i write stories if no one was going to read them i don't Uh, think i could ever do that yeah yeah i mean i think part of the act of creation is the satisfaction of knowing that you've touched another person's life 
Yeah. Is that you've made someone think, you've made someone see the world in a different way. Like that's why I create and write. Yeah. And I think maybe King is different. Yeah. Well, I it's the compulsion, I, right? Like And maybe that's also why there is a second there is something after that. Is he felt he had to write it. Like think about Not Pet Cemetery. Like he wrote that book and put it in a drawer and he wasn't gonna let anyone read it. Like that's wild to me. Like even if I wrote yeah. something that scared me in the way that he says it scared him, I'd be like, I'd want people to read that to be like, does it scare you as much as it scares well, me? Well, it's so good yeah. too. Like if that's I wrote yeah. I, yeah, I, I love do, I love that book. I've noticed this a lot about myself since Boone was born, just because I have less time to write and I I um, you know, it's just easy to get caught up in other things. I'm just in a much better mood and much happier with myself and not a jealous person when I write, if that makes sense. So I, it, it, I, I don't, I don't think I'm like King at all. I can never have that output or that level of talent, but like, I do feel this kind of, it's just like medicine for me a little bit as silly mm. as that, that sounds. So I feel like I would, but then again, it's tough because I've only ever written under the auspices of show, even if I'm not getting published to show it to other people or put it up as a play or whatever else. But it, like with, with his pet cemetery thing is wild to me because yeah, the book is scary and it's also so fucking good. Like if I had something I wrote, I'm like, wow. Like, and it was Pet Cemetery, I would be like, I don't care if it's like a bad omen that all these kids die. Like, no, like the world needs to see this. Um, but would, would you, I'm curious, would you write, more, like I would probably continue writing a journal for sure. Yeah. Right. See, that's like, even if I was on a desert island, I probably yeah. would keep a journal. I, but I, it's weird because I've, I can't I've actually, see, well, actually on a desert island, if I get carried away with that fantasy, I might do stories because I get bored. Yeah. But if for some reason, like people who, the people who are like, I just must. Well, anyway, I, I've made my. I think I've made my point. Um, sure. I think that King has a little bit of resentment towards his readers because he would do this anyway. I want to read the in, just a little bit of the coda because it dovetails with yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and I and I love that you say tantrum. I mean, obviously we love King. He is having a tantrum here. I can close my eyes to Midworld and all that lies beyond Midworld. Yet some of you who have provided the ears without which no tale can survive a single day are likely not so willing. You are the grim, goal-oriented ones who will not believe that the joy is in the journey rather than the destination, no matter how many times it has been proven to you. You are the unfortunate ones who will still get who still get the lovemaking all confused with the paltry squirt that comes to the end of the lovemaking. <laughs> <laughs> the, oh, yeah. the orgasm is, after all, God's way of telling us we've finished, at least for the time being, and should go to sleep. You are also the, really <laughs> you are the cruel ones who deny <laughs> the gray havens where tired characters go to rest. You say you want to know how it all comes out. You say you want to follow Roland to the, into the tower. You say that is what you paid your money for the show you came to see. I hope most of you know better, want better. I hope you came to hear the tale and not just munch your way through the pages to the ending. Like he, he he may as well just end that saying fuck you. Yeah, he's like, so mad. It's like, like and that's where I, negatives in there too. Like it's like yeah. no, you don't want not to have not this idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, also, just uh, orgasm doesn't mean you're done. <laughs> Sorry. Like <laughs> I just for a note, especially dudes out <laughs> there, straight dudes. Hey, hey. Don't tell me how. There are still yeah, don't tell me. Yeah, okay, I'll take my paltry like, squirt like, how I want. Yeah. Don't, don't paltry yeah, squirt, like squirt, squirt how we want. That's don't paltry squirt shame. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to actually, I want to move into to my next question. And it, because it ties back to everything we're saying is relating to it. And it ties back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the idea of if King is satisfied with this book. Um, so I have, I have a few things I want to say here, um, which is that. I don't, and I've already said, I don't think King wanted to write 
the part where Roland goes in. Um, he seems resentful for those who wanted him to finish it. And I want to read, there's a post, uh, Washington Post opinion piece that I found from uh, 2016, which is when they announced the Dark um, the Dark Tower movie adaptation. And I found this an interesting piece because it touches on a lot of what we're saying. One gets the sense from reading later portions of the saga, specifically volumes five through seven, which were released in rap, blah, 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 that these potent feelings of mortality and legacy were weighing on him as he tried to wrap things up. Uh, by the summer of 1997, King had clearly known the story of the wolves, the twins, and the flying plates called Orises, King writes of himself in The Dark Tower, a book dripping with self-loathing. But to the writer, all that had seemed like too much work. He had chosen a book of loosely interlocked stories called Hearts in Atlantis instead, and even now, the writer was frittering away the last of his time writing about peace and love in Vietnam. Later on, Roland himself cuts his creator to the quick. He's lazy as well. I felt it when I met him, Roland says. He looked at the job he was made to do and it daunted him and he said to himself, all right, I'll find an easier job, one that's more to my liking and more to my abilities. Uh, one of Roland's mates suggests he didn't like his creator. Roland nods, not a bit, nor trusted him. I've met tail spinners before and they're all cut more or less from the same cloth. They tell tales because they're afraid of life. This is not some random character speaking here. It's one King has described as his own lookalike, his own son in a previous volume, one who has lived with, within King for decades now. King's self-criticism is born of the treatment he received at the hands of his most dedicated fans. Think of how it must feel to be literally the most popular author in the world, one who has moved millions of copies of dozens of books and as rich as beyond the dreaming of any writer not named J.K. Rowling, and be told time and again by your most loyal readers that your life's work was incomplete, that you had been unable to do the thing they'd asked of you, that you had been weak and lazy and useless to them. Now imagine being subjected to this unintentional casual cruelty while recovering from crippling near-deadly injuries. The combination of psychic and physical pain would have been more than most of us could bear. Who can blame King for saying at such a low moment that he wanted to retire? Who can blame King for excoriating himself in the pages of the books that represented the culmination of his life's work? Some fans of the series have voiced frustration with the rushed meta nature of these books and with the way the series concluded, but we only have ourselves to blame. And um, it goes on from there, but I think this is something I thought about a lot. Uh, mainly because of how angry he sounds in a lot of these um, in that, but also in the afterward. So I want to read this part from the afterward here because he also sounds pissed off there. He says, you may not like what Roland found at the top, but that's a different matter entirely. And don't write me angry letters about it either because I won't answer them. There's nothing left to say on the subject. I wasn't exactly crazy about the ending either if you want to know the truth, but it's the right ending. The only ending, in fact. You have to remember that I don't make these things up. Not exactly. I only write down what I see. And then later on down the page, he says, and on behalf of Roland and all his content, now scattered, say sorry. I thank you for coming along and sharing this adventure with me. I never worked harder on a project in my life, and I know none better, alas, that it has not been entirely successful. What work of make-believe ever is. That last sentence is a little qualifier, I think. I think he knows that he didn't quite nail it. And, um, and I think he is telling himself that, uh, that, it's the only ending and that it was the right ending because I think he, I get the vibe that he did not enjoy writing these books and, um, or at least these last ones. And I think all this talk about re retiring, uh, this is something he was talking about a lot, which if you track it kind of tracks with all of his talk about retirement in the wake of the accident. Like it, I think it in a lot of ways aligns with him writing these books 
Um, and then he admits that he wants to revise it, him admitting that him being a part of it isn't perfect. And there's all this talk in the book about the deus ex machina, right? Like, he seems to be reckoning with his own inclusion in this story. He has, like, Eddie has a whole section where he talks about the deus ex machina, and it's it doesn't really edify or like illuminate anything it just sounds like king reckoning with it and then later there's that moment with dandelo where he basically does insert a deus ex machina and i think he knows that it's lazy writing and i think that's why he had these flashes where he's like like he's being defensive obviously because i think he feels like some of the critiques are true and um and this brief like little sense of what if I wrote myself out of the book is so fascinating to me. Like maybe he figured it out all these years later that the way to do it without putting himself in the story. And that's so interesting. But I want to say this too. This is sort of my read, I think, because there's so much weight to the way he speaks about finishing this book. Like in, in all the interviews, in the afterward, in the coda, there is so much weight. And I almost feel like it's overinflated looking back all these years later. Like, in my mind, The Dark Tower will not be King's legacy. It is not his culminating work. But he speaks of it as if it will. Like, in nearly all of our book episodes since the accident, but primarily in Dreamcatcher and Buick A, like, we discuss King's clear obsession with death, the idea that the world, too, may be dying. Like, these a lot, these were all written in the shadow of 9-11. And during our Buick A episode, we talked a lot about the nihilism that was kind of bleeding through those pages. Um, I think the Dark Tower took on a kind of like outsized importance in his mind because it was unfinished. Like forcing himself to finish it not only made him feel like he was accomplishing something with his second chance after the accident, but it also gave him this like grander purpose when I think a lot of Americans were feeling a sense of like creeping doom. And he was too, probably. And like the book really does feel like a summation of a lot of his themes, like this like sort of grand statement. And um, and. And I and he says that like in the afterword too. He's like, I have nothing left to say. And so like I just get the vibe that he wasn't having fun writing these books, that um, and that it probably felt like a sprint, like an exhaustion. And that with the work he's done, like with the work finished, he probably was like, I'm just gonna spend some time with my family because like before death can take me. I think he was so desperate to finish because he was afraid of death, you know? And I think this ties into my main critique of the book, which is this single book, this one, I think it could have been six different books or six different stories. And most of them I would want to read. Like, give me a story about Mordred. Give me one about uh, Prentice and Finley. Like, give me a story about Patrick Danville. Give me a story about the about Blue Heaven, the Breaker community. Like, I wish he, I feel like he was worried. He felt rushed that he had to finish it. I think there was a, an urge and a desire in him to finish it so he could shut the fans up and uh, shut the sort of looming dread of having something unfinished when he died. Because in this book, I'm like, and then obviously, like, he did go on to tell stories with Win Through the Keyhole. And I feel like I just wish he, I look at this book where I think there are so many different stories. And most of, I, I like the book overall. Like, I really do. But there's a reason that Mordred, I think, doesn't land the way that we'd like him to. I think there's a reason the Crimson King feels a little bit opaque. I think there's a reason that uh, Pimley and Finley and the Low Men have these like kind of really wonderful little stories, but then it, it all evaporates within the course of like 150 pages. I think there were so many like guys like Robert Jordan and and um, 
Tolkien, they lived in these worlds throughout their whole careers. Their work was primarily built on this one world they created. Like, and I feel like King didn't have that. He didn't really want to do that. But I wish he didn't feel like he had to wrap it up with this book. I wish he could have been like, I'll write a Dark Tower book whenever I get to it. And if I finish it, I finish it. Because I think he had all these ideas and he could have written books about all these other avenues. And I wish he didn't feel rushed. But I think it was the near death, the weight of the world and the fan response, the Internet, the theories. I think he wanted to shut it all up. That's like my little rant about this. I find I I thought about this a lot and I think a lot of it just stems from what I read as intense resentment and anger in all of these interviews and pages. So, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys he, think? He felt forced to write it and then literally in the book he's forced to write it, exactly. right? Yeah. Like that's that's what we're seeing here. And I think it's telling that I think the best part of the book is Blue Heaven is mm-hmm. is I mean, for the reasons we've said, because Pimley and I've always want to say like Gimli. Um, <laughs> Gimli Otego. The Wheeze, uh, Polly Shore. The Wheeze, the Wheeze um, uh, are such great characters and it's such an interesting situation, right? It, 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 I, I, again, disagree with what I think he's saying about creativity and about creating, but it's still very interesting. And I think it it's also has the least, it literally has the least to do with the Dark Tower journey, right? Again, I come back to, it was a weird part in the book for me when they're like, what should we do first? I mean, like, you, you should, <laughs> you should save the people. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? We, what should we do first? <laughs> like, go save the people. Right. Uh, and I, I think it all, and yet it also maybe has a little more of a spark of King's, you know, genuine creativity to it. It, it it's something maybe he was more naturally drawn to than than Roland's journey, which maybe he gets bored of Roland's journey. I don't know. Uh, I do think that resentment comes through in this book in a way that it doesn't in others of this series. I agree. Also, I, it literally could have been other books. It's too damn long. It's so yeah. long. <laughs> well, there's so I, um, many like huge sections that I yeah. feel like are compressed and that doesn't mean they're not good i do enjoy a lot of it the dandelo section is like like that's such a puzzling strange section to me and we can talk more about it later but yeah i i I have the same feeling about that i'm not sure how i feel about that section and also the the deuces machina of it just pissed me off yeah (laughs) yeah uh caffrey you know i yeah i was gonna say i don't disagree with anything you're saying i think all that is present in the book um but I don't know. I, I feel like I almost look at my enjoyment of Stephen King books a little bit differently at this point, especially since we've talked about him so much and he's his work is such a big part of our lives. So, all right, Neil Young, right? Like Stephen King loves Neil Young. I love Neil Young. Neil Young's got like probably as many albums as King has books, um, you know, in the 50s somewhere. And every few years I go through and I listen to like all of his stuff. And not all of it's great. Some of it's really flawed. But I feel like at this point with Neil Young, I've started looking at it like, okay, what is this new work, regardless of how perfect it may or may not be or how satisfying it may or may not be? What insight is it giving me into the author or into the, in his case, the musician or the creator? And I guess I look at it like if it's one of my favorite artists, I feel like I'm usually going and it's it's interesting, right? Because we're in such a um, hot button era as far as like separating the art from the artist, right? Sure, um, yeah. King is a little bit different because he's not really like a scandalous dude. So it's not like I have to worry about that too much. But because especially with the Wolves of the Kala onward, the Dark Tower books, while I agree, are, are not his crowning achievement. They're not my absolute favorite thing he's written. 
I think because there was such buildup among the fan community at the time and because there's this kind of self-imposed scope, there's that woman, right, who like wrote him that she was dying of cancer yeah, and needed yeah. to know how it's I think and, that you stuff know. weighed on him. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And so I think because of that and because he inserted himself into uh, starting with Wolves of the Call, then expanding, expanding, expanding with these last three books, I think I just look at it like I don't disagree that he is is throwing a tantrum and is not satisfied with the ending and is getting defensive and all that. I think I just enjoy that because I like getting insight into where he was psychologically at the time. And once again, yeah. it also, not just the fan expectation, but that tying back to how he, you, Randall used the word reckoning, right? Yeah. And you, you can see him actively reckoning with his own reputation as an author, his relationship with his fans, his age, his, the fact that he almost died. And I think a lot of that stuff, honestly, at this point he has figured out, like when you guys interviewed him. Oh, he seems I, I, so much more well-adjusted these days. 100%. Like, <laughs> I think he, I think a lot of that is kind of alchemized in himself and he's figured out his a healthy relationship with his fans and he seen like looking at um when Fleur and I talked to Richard Chismar it, he seems like he looks at this Gwenny's books as like a fun thing he wanted to yep. try the friend right he he seems to just be at peace with himself in a way maybe he's not in this book and that's fascinating to me I like to read that thornier side of him and like him sort of like it really it really it comes across as someone who's figuring all that shit out um like well, yeah, like, like we're think all, of the quotes in the interviews where he's like He's like, I, you know, I keep going back to people are sending me shit about wormholes. And he's like, <laughs> I, I didn't, I flunked fucking physics. Like he's trying to tell people stop building it up so much because I yeah. might, I'll probably disappoint you. He, that's what he's yeah. And I think that's like, because he's never really had an ongoing series uh, at the, up to this point in his career where yeah, people were right. theorizing and doing all this other, you know, it's like. I think, um, and I mean, I can't even imagine how he would have operated if social media was around when he was God. writing this book. <laughs> you know? Jesus, thank like, God. Like he was just getting probably screenshots from fucking, uh, you know, Dark Tower message boards. Like, yeah. and he, and this was driving him crazy. Well, I, so I, I think sort of that um, he w he hated the expectation because I think he worried that he was going to disappoint everyone. Yeah, I think just on that failing physics thing, it's like, I think he might have failed statistics as well because there's like statistical <laughs> outliers, right? So the person that writes in does not, I didn't elect that person. They don't speak for me. I'm a lifelong constant reader. And so it's like, well, the fans want, it's like, no, no, fan, maybe some people, but to just yeah, the loudest together, internet people, the loudest, the right. Loudest and people, it's, it's the yeah. same. And I, I try to be pretty even keeled because like if someone compliments on something I've done or someone insults it, you kind of have to take them the same, right? That, you, that person doesn't represent a broader group of people. And it's easy to project that. It's like, oh, well, you know, people are saying it's like, but who is like really, <laughs> what amount of people are saying this? So when he's like, you know, I hate to see him getting so worked up. And like Neil Gaiman came out and defended George R. R. Martin because, you know, so many people, and I'm a fan of George R. R. Martin, but I agree with Gaiman where he's like, you know, writers and artists are not machines. And like, would yeah. you rather it be rushed and not as good a quality or take time? And a lot of the people that I do see complain about like Game of Thrones are people who watched the show and then started reading the books. And you're like, well, there's been people that have been reading since the beginning. So I feel bad that's for a those great people. comparison because that's I, how I feel about Martin, too, which is like, yeah. I, I just want it to be good. Right. I'd rather be don't rush, you know, don't compromise the quality by rushing it out. But when you see like David Lynch's approach where he won't answer questions about his work and you're like, man, that's almost a smarter strategy to take. You're like, look, I'm just not going to talk about it. <laughs> Obviously, King is kind of the opposite. Like he gets involved and likes to talk about this stuff. But it just bothers me when it's like these expectations I get put on this person. No, they can do it at their own pace. And you should, you know, I understand like the impatience of the frustration, but to see the artist getting this upset, it really bothers me. Cause I'm like, that's, you know, we should be 
praising him. And it's okay to criticize and disagree, but to see the stress that he's going through, that really bothers me. Like, I don't, he doesn't deserve the pressure. Yeah. Right. And it's and, like, and Anna, think about it. What oh, you're saying is you're, you're a fan of, it's like, you know, you're a fan of a sports team and then you run into one of those athletes and you're just like, you suck. And you're like, that's a person, you know, like <laughs> chill out. Sorry. Anna, go. Anna. Well, I'm just thinking of, of, I can think of two authors that I really love, Billy Lee Brammer and Fred Exley, who wrote beautiful first novels that just are part of my heart. I mean, my dog is named Exley. I was going to say, it's your dog named after <laughs> uh, And they all, none of their other books are as good, yeah. you know, and I, I kind of wish they'd done a Harper Lee, yeah. like, <laughs> like just stopped know, after the first one. Just stop. Yeah, just stop. I mean, they also doesn't they're both alcoholics and like that's probably one of the reasons why they're not as good. But um I would rather someone I would rather I you know do it on their own on their own schedule, but also if it's if you have if if someone tells you it's not as good maybe um like let's end it let's end on a high note, right? Mm-hmm. Like don't force it. I yeah. I will say to to your question about um you know, are, are we served by this other ending that we get? It's funny because I, I like what Roland sees in the tower and I like the cyclical, uh, you know, nature of just his journey and it plays into Ka and all that, that, that plays into, I think the overall theme of the book. Right. But I think the ending before that, just leaving with, um, Eddie and Susanna in New York and then Roland running towards the tower that actually plays more into the individual theme of this book, which is the choose your friends, choose happiness, choose this. Like though, cause that becomes a whole different comment then, because if we just end, if we end with them in New York, we know that they have a good life together, uh, hopefully with a Corgi named Oi at some point. <laughs> and then we see Roland just running toward the tower. It's the study in contrast right away. And it's like, no, the point of this wasn't what was in the tower. It was actually these more intimate moments, yeah. these the more realistic things that we all have in our lives to some extent. Um, so I I like the I don't mind the ending of I of everything repeating itself and Roland grabbing the horn and all that, but I think it would have also worked had King just hatcheted off that off the other part. I don't maybe I like I said, I and I enjoy I enjoy his angry tantrum because it gives me insight into him. I don't know if we need it from a literary standpoint quite as much. And I can yeah. figure that like it is sad. I mean, it, I, looking I wonder, back, it's sad to read that. Yeah. I wonder if in like when he's saying this stuff in interviews years later, I wonder if he's embarrassed by stuff like that. Because it just sounds like he was so heated in the moment, you know? And and uh and King is somebody who, when he is heated, he will say things that he might regret later. Like he's always been like that. He's not the best. Like he, like look at his Twitter account. He says all kinds of shit that he probably shouldn't say, but he doesn't really care. And that's, that's part of why we like him, I think. But mm-hmm. I think sometimes he goes overboard, you know, he and, salts um, the earth in that, in that element. Yeah. Wait, even, even how he talked about the, and uh, but we'll get to the, some of these scenes later, but um, even with Brian Smith, who, who um ran him over, right. Which look, King has every reason to be mad at that guy for, you know, when he was, we have alive. a whole episode in the Patreon. About but, him, right. Yeah. You can go listen to that. But it's interesting. It's like when he, you know, in, in the, in the months following now to his credit, he didn't take legal action like he could have, but he, he was kind of insulting towards the guy and like calling him stupid and this or that once again, has every reason to be mad at it's him. It's really but then, complicated. But then when he died, he, it was that he, he commented very thoughtfully on him that like that's sad. Yeah. And I, and so I, and I think, I think that's, um, Hey, it's a testament to, I think King still feels very human despite how famous he is. Um, and that's what we love about him too. So, and the yeah. ending is an example of that. And, you know, whether it's satisfying or not, I think is going to just depend on, on personal taste. Cool. All right. I think we're, uh, I think we're going to touch on more themes as we keep going, but let's keep moving to structure and format. 
here in structure and format, we talk about structure and format. And I think here, I mean, this is a pretty like this is kind of um, this might actually be a good time for you, Caffrey, to talk about comparisons you saw to um, the final Harry Potter book. Yeah, it's funny because we talk in uh, that New York Times review. They talk about oh him like borrowing from J.K. Rowling, whatever else. Now, I don't have any official documentation of this. Um other than the Deathly Hallows came out after this and shortly after this. And, you know, I know they're not talking anymore for reasons we don't have to get into here. No, there's, uh, King, I think they still talk. Yeah. King and Rowling. I thought they, I thought he said he was like canceled by her. I think he's not. Oh, okay. After the, after the, um, cause he, he tweeted like a support of trans people and then she unfollowed him after that. Oh, and, uh, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, well, either way, like, yeah. And so, but to me, the books feel very similar in how they round out the series, both in length and also that, they kind of break from the established, they're both quest narratives, but they break from the established environments from the earlier ones, like in the seventh Harry Potter book, right? It's the only one that doesn't go right from um, him being at home, right back to school. He's kind of on the run instead. And they both feel like similarly, very episodic to me. Like, it's like, okay, we're doing this thing. We're doing this thing. We're doing this thing. We're doing this thing. And both involve resurrection to an extent. And also, just a lot of fucking characters dying like on the way like you could say i mean uh, i guess spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read harry potter uh turn this off but like you know we get like Hedwig getting killed and and uh that at the beginning of the seventh book we get oi getting killed at the end of this book it just i don't know and i like i said i don't have any at all scientific or journalistic evidence to say that she was inspired by that but i, I don't know i wish it, it just felt very similar to me and obviously with the sneeches and everything else like they feel kind of intertwined as far as like how to end your big fantasy epic. I think Deathly Hallows... Well, maybe because there's so much story to get through, right? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just this thing of like, kind of like hurtling toward the end. And also... Event, 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 event. I think the seventh Harry Potter is probably a lot more um, universally liked than than this book is i would say it's a less flawed novel it's probably more satisfying but it still doesn't end quite in the way that you think it would in terms of his like there's not i don't know even the fight he has with voldemort at the end it's almost metaphysical and like going inside his head and re-looking back at his life yeah what do you say ritual of chud from it I it is. You, it totally I, is Ritual Chud. I thought you said Rich Little Chud. Rich like, Little like Chud. Harry's doing Harry impressions. Was a rich yeah. Little Chud, yeah. Um, so yeah, I was just thinking about that a lot. And as as far as how does that ties to the structure and format, in, in a way, it's the most structurally straightforward Dark Tower book, maybe since the first one, um, where, you know, we have everyone kind of in their in their different quest worlds and it's going back and forth and they sort of co- coalesce at the end and go towards this one thing. We don't have any... Um, well, I don't know. I guess things get a little, this isn't really structured format. Things get maybe a little confusing when we talk to Moses Carver and start hearing about how King affects <laughs> it at all. But, but, but we there's, don't no, have, there, there's no cantos like in, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's you, you don't have the song of Susanna um, craziness that we went over last time. You don't have the wizard and glass uh, jumping back and forth in time and kind of having the story within the story. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It just feels like much more like an, an adventure quest, even though there's a lot to get through. Um, yeah. I don't know. I couldn't find anything on like the dark, like any, Thing J.K. Rowling said, and once again, I'm sure she had her novel planned out just like Stephen King did with his long before she actually wrote it. But I couldn't help but think of both of those books together, especially given how close together they. I mean, I think they were only published like a few months apart or something. Oh like yeah, because I, I read all the books as well, the Harry Potter ones. Like I did them in like kind of a three month. They were all published by the time I did it, and I yeah. think all those books were written in like an 11 year period. And you did see that start as a child's book and sort of segue into a young adult. So. I think those books did build a lot of momentum because the first two books 
with Harry Potter, you can just watch the movies. Like they're so yeah, they're simplistic. So similar, yeah. Um, in terms of like, I don't know. I always think that's like a bad just because like she's popular. It's like saying like, oh, well, Backstreet Boys sold a bunch of albums, and so did the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so therefore, it's like yeah, but the hey, audience this is, is what King's been dealing with his whole career. No, for real. <laughs> yeah. And then even with like the J.K. Rowling friendship thing, it's like, are they friends or have they met at like book award ceremonies and keep in loose contact? Yeah, I don't think they're like hanging out on the front porch drinking a nasla cola and like it, i think it's just like they're contemporaries and they're friendly but i don't know if they are even friends or that it really matters i guess yeah yeah, yeah and, and and i know too i, I remember the time he was because he was writing for entertainment weekly Rafani even said this on the podcast one time he's like man do you think king wishes he wrote harry potter because he like adored it at, at this time period and you know we see him barring from the snitches already both in in wolves of the kala and here and um yeah, so I guess I think they were just like aware of each other's work in, in that kind of way. I'm just picturing the porch. I'm like, Joe, come on over. I know, <laughs> I know you've had a hard week online. Well, think uh, of every journalist, <laughs> every journalist asking a question and like, so Harry Potter, you know, it's it's these mm-hmm. dumb questions that get asked a million times. So you can't help but kind of become in each other's sphere of influence over time. Yeah. Yeah. And something I've I've folded into this section a lot over because it is kind of a king thing, which is occasionally, especially in these latter books where I think the editing hand is a little bit lighter. Sometimes in his narration, he'll he'll throw in an eye like he'll make himself present in the actual book. And I feel like that's gone from zero to 100 in this one since he is, uh, you know, such a big presence. And the, the whole concept is that we know who is writing the book. He is a character in the book. So but. I don't think that that always works. And I, I was like, I don't know if you, I'm sure you guys caught this because it's right near the top. Page 17. Uh, the scold pata tumbled to the red rug, bounced beneath one of the tables. And there, like a certain paper boat, some of you may remember, passes out of this tale forever. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. like, why why an it reference? It, no, you know it, no I mean? it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned it. So I've been going through Dave Mustin's trivia book every day and doing these these quizzes. And he... Um, he has one that's like opening lines of of King books. And you have to guess which ones they are. And there are a lot of them that open up in the first person, including it, even though they're not like from characters' points of views. But I wouldn't even call them first person omniscient either because it's not consistent throughout the book. Like he'll just right. kind of pick, he does it here too where like, Oh, I'm paraphrasing, but like, I regret to inform you, dear reader, like, uh, this is the last time we'll see the Katet say, sorry. yeah, I've you know, it's like this weird, examples, like kind of, yeah. and, and, and it actually has lines like that too. Like, um, the first line, it is in the fir- first person and has that, it, it is like King speaking all of a sudden. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's a, a very, it, it's all, it almost doesn't happen frequently enough for it to feel like a stylistic exactly. choice, if that makes sense. Like yeah. I remember in Black House, there's like one instance and it's like 400 pages in it's so strange and uh but yeah. in this book it makes more sense that he would do it here but um but i do find it like the it reference on page 17 is just really bizarre to me and then um and then uh this one actually made me laugh basically when mordred the baby comes out you know <laughs> and we have all these scenes with with uh flag and this like literal baby i love like king literally writes and basically says I know this is going to sound stupid, but be, please, you should all be afraid of the baby. He says, what I'd show you is much more bizarre than anything we have looked at so far. And I warn you in advance that your first impulse will be to laugh. That's all right. Laugh if you must. Just don't take your eye off what you see. For even in your imagination, here is a creature which can do you damage. Remember that it came of two fathers, both of them killers. I just love him saying, I know it's a baby. Trust me, it, it's but scary. it's that defensive thing again a little bit. Yeah, it it's like the, even, yeah. even though I think Mordred's like 
really fucking terrifying. And I beginning. don't know. I find babies terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Also, they're, they're weird, man. You have the twin enzyme. I guess yeah. you have the killer enzyme as well, right? So both the fathers are killers. So genetically, you know, this one's going to oh, be yeah. killer. And <laughs> I'm getting real sciencey on this episode. The, he does the stuff like thing this is too so when Pimley's introduced. And while he's on his knees before the closed toilet seat, this man who will shortly be asking his God to forgive him for working to end creation, and with absolutely no sense of irony, we might as well look at him a bit more closely. We won't take long, for Pimley Prentice isn't central to our tale of Roland and his quartet. Still, he's a fascinating man, blah, blah, blah. I, why would you even put that? If Like, when I read that, I'm just like, okay, well, you know, I guess this is an important... Well, like, it's like, and we know he's fascinating because he... You did a good job writing him. Like he, he is, yeah, he, he's fascinating. That's enough. We don't need to. Yeah, know. it wouldn't take a genius editor to take that out. Yeah, you know, like. Do, it, do you guys it, think? It, I don't know, Anna. Maybe you have more insight to this because you're a fiction writer. I, do you think because I mean he has an editor, obviously, but do you think because he's king and he's at his level, like I, they just don't do it as much for him? I, I guess if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that. Well, I mean, books are barely edited anyway. Like especially fiction is barely edited. Um at least again only the one novel but like it chunks are like i got advice about chunks of things like the narrative this might see maybe even this might scene might be better here you know like you need a, something to break up all of this um but i think even that's kind of a luxury i think and, it, and if they and if someone like king you could just you know people are going to read it no matter what yeah he's going to sell um, sell sell so, yeah, it's kind of, yeah. It would take a brave editor, I guess, who's not afraid <laughs> of losing their job on the next book, right? Yeah. But I think he's had What's funny is I think, I think King would hear it. I, I don't... He's had know, the I, same... I think so, too. I, I think he's had the same... Oh, he might be... He might have passed away at this point, but... Um, oh, Chuck I think Verrill. Chuck Verrill, right? Yeah, he the, passed away, I think, last year. Yeah, like, he, I mean, I think he had been his longtime editor, but, which can be both good and bad, right? Like, he can recognize things, but then also might be like, oh, yeah, Stephen, like, you're great. <laughs> you're gonna... Well, yeah, gonna... and I mean, maybe there is, like, something playful about it which they they want and it does and king's voice and his personality is really intertwined with all of this but i just don't think uh, like stuff like that necessarily works and like later in the book 581 of my edition he writes would it surprise you after all we've seen together and all the secrets we've learned to know that at quarter past five that afternoon mrs tassenbaum pulled chip mcavoy's old truck into the driveway of a house we already visited Probably not, because Ka is a wheel, and all it knows how to do is roll. When last we visited here in 1977, blah, blah, blah. I just, like, I find sections like that really, like, alienating in a weird way. Um, and there's, like, a lot of just weird changes in tone and perspective, sometimes in the middle of chapters. And um, I don't know. It's a little I find chunky. it odd. Yeah. Yeah. It's, chunk, yeah. Which it's I think... That's the book. The book is like, I just look at how thick this thing is and it's so sprawling and so all over the place. Now, again, I like the book, but it, it does feel like so many different um, novellas like smashed together, um, like into a big ball sometimes. And and I feel like sometimes the 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 tissue that connects them are those moments, like those moments. Would it surprise you? You know, don't laugh at the baby. And it's just like <laughs> there, there are these moments that are like glue that kind of or duct tape that kind of pieces it all together. Anna? I don't think of it so much. I don't think those are duct tape. Well, maybe depends on your definition. What I think is happening there yeah. is that the king is his voice is coming out because he's not fully invested in this. Like he's 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 so conscious of writing oh, the story. That's a great way to phrase it. Yeah, like he can't help but kind of like observe himself writing it. Whereas when he's really in the groove and it's coming out, just like 
he in this um we all are writers so i think we all know there is that stage of writing where you're not even conscious you're writing almost it's like it's just like i am in it these words it's 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 not it's a flow state right like whatever and and it is transporting and i'm sure that's what king gets to you know a lot but i think maybe this book he had some moments of noticing he was writing yeah so i think I that's think such that a he's so conscious of his own writing like he's almost like he's talking to himself a little bit like eh. and it's a, a little he's having fun those moments for him are fun even though they're not for us do you guys yeah. think though do you i know like i said i think they're just like a, a slightly it, it's it, i use this word all the time but they're slightly folksy in a way which can he can he can right. tip the scales on the folksiness which he certainly does in the main sections here with like that the guy at the butcher or whatever or the guy at the uh the corner store. Oh, um, yeah. Do you think though that it, and I don't know because he's done it in other books. So probably not. It's probably just a thing he does. Do you think he earns it a little bit here because this book is so tied to him as the writer and like getting into the inner workings or do you think it's just like late, like a thing he does that he's just not tempering here? I think it's, it's not. I, yeah. I just I was going to say, I think it's exactly what Anna said. I think it's a, it's a hyper self-consciousness um, that he would be doing anyway, regardless of, of whether he's a character in the novel or not, I guess is what I'm yeah. saying. Oh yes. Yeah. That I think, I think he doesn't do it in other books because he's not as aware of his own mm. writing. Yeah. That makes sense. Although he does do it in other books that Rihanna pointed out. Like, and I think that maybe that's his tick when he's not in a groove. I'll be mm. looking for it for now on actually. Yeah. I think maybe point. that's just a tick he has when things aren't flowing quite so well. Like I have ticks that you know, I have ticks and tricks that I use when things aren't going well for me or when my writing is kind of like stodgy along. And maybe that's just he doesn't even know it, but that's what it is. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, point. there's almost like a sweaty quality to it where it's like he's trying to like <laughs> force himself to get to the next section. He's just like, okay, I need something to take me to this or or explain this bit of exposition or this bit of whatever. Or, you know, and I think like the referencing the it was just maybe a cheeky thing or maybe referencing the idea that, hey, it's it, you know, it might play a role later in this book. Um I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. what he, well, maybe, he was getting at. Not, not to play devil's advocate because I don't really Please understand do. with this argument too much. But I think having the split personalities like the ego, the id, and the super ego later mm. in the book, it would have been nice to him kind of to tie it back to maybe some of these internal disagreements that he chooses to share on the page or these little folksy kind of, anyway, here's a segue. And like somehow tying those characters to like, you know, there were multiple yeah. kings contributing to this, but I, I don't. Or like he. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. What, no, yeah, or even if even if like each of them embodies like a different writing trope, right. but that would involve a self-awareness that, you know, probably the lack of which leads to this pattern to it, begin it with. So, like uh, 300 more pages, too, but I'm, it would have been fun <laughs> to see. Yeah, he'd be like, he'd, he'd, be, he'd be like, my name's Jehubis. I'm uh... <laughs> Well, that's that's all I really had for for uh, structure and format, because it's I like, you know, like you said, Dan, it's a pretty straightforward narrative in terms of how it's structured. But there's I think it's just more so in the way that he um, navigates these pages. And um, and yeah, I think that's interesting. Well, that seems like a good place to cut this one off. Oh, but there is so, so much more to discuss. Mordred, Dandelo, the low men, the pound cake, the scary stuff, the silly stuff and as a little bonus, our personal rankings of the seven books that comprise the main Dark Tower saga. The good news 
is that Patrons of the Barons, our Losers Club Patreon, won't have to wait a whole week for it. It'll hit the feed sometime this week, a little Christmas present for our most loyal listeners. You can sign up at patreon.com slash thebarons and get access to not only that episode, but hundreds of hours of bonus content, including commentaries, interviews, movie reviews, and uh, reviews of King novels like Billy Summers, Later, Gwendy's Final Task, Fairy Tale. The rest of you can expect part two of our Tower Pod on Friday, December 30th. And if you're listening to this in the future, well, hello. This is mostly irrelevant to you. You should still join our Patreon, though. Our Discord community is very cool. All right. See ya. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.